0: guess how many grams of sugar are in this normal looking size bottle of cherry coke
1: is that 20 ounce
0: it is 20 ounce yep uh
1: 40 nope 50 70 in a 20 ounce bottle there's 70 grams of sugar
0: (laughs) 70 grams of sugar in one 20 ounce bottle wow i can't believe they still sell this stuff
1: Welcome to Season 8, Episode 6 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I am the co-founder and managing director of Seattle-based Pioneer Square Labs and our venture fund, PSL Ventures.
0: And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am an angel investor based in San Francisco.
1: And we are your hosts. On our last episode, we told the story of Warren Buffett in the years of running his own partnerships, those 12 years leading up through 1969, when he shut it down after his best year ever and returned all the money to his investors. Today, we will pick up right where we left off, telling the story of the declining suit liner manufacturer that he bought, Berkshire Hathaway. Today's story is one of an investment style in transition— From a focus on cigar butts to a focus on wonderful businesses, much of which was inspired by the man we've only briefly mentioned so far, Charlie Munger. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, boy, it'll be really great to get the other half of the Berkshire story to understand where they are today. Unfortunately, you should know David and I (laughs) better than that. We were foolish to think that we could tell the whole Berkshire story in a mere two episodes. (laughs) So this episode is our Empire Strikes Back. It will serve as a bridge between the early forces that made Warren and the mature Berkshire that we have today. What made Buffett start investing again after dissolving his partnership? And why on earth did he decide to do that inside of the shell of the declining Berkshire instead of just starting a new fund? And even how did he end up briefly as the chairman of a Wall Street bank with a culture that he had criticized for his whole investing career. So here we are, part two of our Berkshire Hathaway trilogy.
0: This really is The Empire Strikes Back. It's going to get dark at the end. Truly. Be prepared.
1: Uh, There's a little bit of an apt analogy there. It's true. Well, folks, are you an acquired Slack member yet? If not, what on earth have you been waiting for? It is a wonderful community. Discussing, of course, all things acquired in recent episodes, but more importantly, it is a smart group of people having thoughtful, nuanced, and respectful discussion about tech, investing. You can join at acquired.fm slash slack. Our next sponsor for this episode is one of our favorite companies and longtime acquired partner, Pilot.com. For startups and growth companies of all kinds, Pilot is the one team for all of your company's accounting, tax, and bookkeeping needs, and in fact, now is the largest startup-focused accounting firm in the U.S.
0: Which is wild, because when we started working with them way back when, they were just a startup themselves, and now they're a billion-dollar-plus company backed by Sequoia, Index, Stripe, and even Jeff Bezos himself.
1: Yep. And speaking of Bezos, we talk all the time on Acquired of Jeff's AWS-inspired axiom that startups should focus on what makes their beer taste better— In other words, only spend your limited time and resources on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and customers and outsource everything else that you do as a company that doesn't fit that bill. And accounting is like example number one of what he's talking about. Every company needs it. It needs to be done by a professional. You don't want to take any risk of anything going wrong. But at the same time, it has zero impact on your product or customers' things you do uniquely well.
0: Yep. So, enter Pilot. Pilot both sets up and operates your company's entire financial stack. So finance, accounting, tax, even CFO services like investor reporting. From your general ledger all the way up to budgeting and financial sections of board decks, Pilot takes care of all that. And they've been doing this now for years across thousands of startups in Silicon Valley and beyond. And there's nobody better who you can trust to both get your finance right and make it easy and painless for you and your
1: company. Now, when you say thousands of companies Pilot does this for, David, these are now companies like OpenAI, Airtable, and Scale, as well as e-commerce and other companies. So it's not just that they have experience across startups, they can keep working with you as you scale to the growth phase and beyond. So if your company or a company that you start in the future wants to go back to focusing on what makes your beer taste better, go to pilot.com acquired or click the link in the show notes and tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to our friends, the Pilot co-founders, all acquired listeners, if you use that link, you will get 20% off your first six months of service. Thanks, Pilot. Now, lastly, if you aren't an LP, you should become one. Aside from all the things that we tell you every time, we have a brand new LP event coming up that we are super excited about. Our next book club will be with Brad Stone. Who famously wrote The Everything Store, The Upstarts. And now, David, what is his new book?
0: Amazon Unbound,
1: part two of the Amazon story
0: just like this is part two of the Berkshire story.
1: <laughs> so our new format for the book club will be that David and I are going to interview Brad. And if you're an LP, then you, you get to join on the Zoom as well. And we'll have time for Q&A. And uh, everybody will hopefully have read the book before we do the interview. So you can join at acquired.fm slash LP and learn more about that program. All right, David, before you take us in, and listeners, as always... The show is not investment advice. David and I may, and I think we've already told you that we do have investments <laughs> in the companies that are discussed on this episode, and this show is for educational and entertainment purposes only.
0: All right, let's get to it. We got a lot to get through here. Yep. So last we left our friend Warren Skywalker, no, Warren Buffett. He was wandering in the woods of Omaha after having closed down the partnership, as you alluded to, Ben and trying to figure out what to do with his life and his retirement. So before we pick back up with that story, though, I think we have some unfinished business and a character that we need to introduce here.
1: This is like so, David, even in an episode where we've already told you like a a multi-decade history and we're like into part two, somehow you're finding a way to wind the clock back.
0: Indeed. And we go all the way back to New Year's Day on 1924 in Omaha, Nebraska, the very same woods that Warren is wandering in.
1: That sounds like six years before Warren was born.
0: Yep. Six and a half years before Warren was born, where in Omaha, Al and Florence Munger, Florence gives birth to a baby boy whom they name Charles Thomas Munger. After his grandfather, who is a widely respected federal judge in the Nebraska U.S. District Court, appointed by Teddy Roosevelt himself, Thomas Charles Munger. So Charles Thomas Munger, named for his grandfather, Thomas Charles Munger. And he takes after his grandfather in many ways. His grandfather makes a big impression on him. Thomas's mantra in life was, concentrate on the task immediately in front of you and control your spending. Sort of mm. sounds similar to Ernest Buffett, <laughs> similar ideals. And this kind of instills this idea of gaining wealth through controlling your spending and focusing on doing a great job at the task in front of you In young Charlie. And Charlie, much like Warren, decides that he wants to become wealthy so that he can not have lots of fancy toys to play with, but so that he can be independent. He has a quote, he says, I wanted to get rich so I could be independent like Lord John Maynard Keynes. Of course, elementary school-aged Charlie Munger is aspiring to be like John Maynard Keynes. So this is where he's a little different than Warren. They really have the same aims and goals in life, but their styles around it are very different. Warren is just like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Charlie's like, oh, I want to be like Lord Keynes. So as we chronicled in part one, Charlie actually goes to work for Ernest Buffett at the grocery store as a kid. Unbelievable for Warren's grandfather, just like Warren learns he hates manual labor and being paid a pittance of salary. And he thinks there's got to be a better way. He can use his mind to make money rather than his uh, manual labor. And speaking of his mind, he loves to read. His parents give him and his sisters lots of books. He tears through them. And uh, very early in life, he stumbles across Ben Franklin and Ben Franklin would become his hero in life. And that's where he develops this idea. I don't know if he stole it from Franklin or if he came up with it himself of making friends of the eminent dead. He decides he enjoys more the company of Dead people and learning from them through their books than (laughs) people who are actually alive.
1: Kind of a one-way conversation, but there's probably a lot, lot of wisdom there. Not to mention like revisionist histories and survivorship bias, yada yada yada.
0: I think a lot of conversations with Charlie are one-way conversations, (laughs) uh, as we shall see. So also Lake Warren, he's he's kind of a wise ass as a kid and has a very high opinion of himself. His neighbor, one Ed Davis, who we discussed in part one. The doctor is his father, Al's best friend.
1: And and just as a refresher, uh, the Davises would become one of the first families to invest in Buffett's first partnership, right?
0: Yeah. And I think the first, if I remember right, the family in Omaha that gave him the most money of sort of the initial group, I mm-hmm. think they gave him $100,000 because Warren reminded them of Charlie. So he ends up going to Michigan for undergrad.
1: Sorry, Ben. It's all right. These days, I'm not sure there's much of a rivalry anyway.
0: Ooh. burn, <laughs> burn. Of course, Ben went to Ohio State. So <laughs> where at Michigan, he majors in math and gets turned on to physics, where he becomes really entranced with physics. And then while he's still at Michigan, Pearl Harbor happens and the U.S. enters World War II. Uh, Charlie joins the Air Force and as part of the intake process, they measure his IQ and he's literally like one of the top IQ scores that the military and like any branch has ever tested.
1: <laughs> no, no major surprise there.
0: Yeah, no major surprise. He's there.
1: probably the, the, you know, top wise ass uh, decile as well. That is <laughs>
0: definitely true. So they send him first to the University of New Mexico to study engineering there. He then goes on to Caltech in Pasadena in Los Angeles and continues his engineering studies there. And then uh, I think he ends up, if I'm remembering this right, I don't have it in my notes. I think he ends up getting stationed in Alaska as a meteorologist during the war.
1: I I remember him being in Alaska too as part of his, uh, his duty. Yeah. So anyway, after the war,
0: he decides that you know, he really enjoyed learning about engineering and physics and math and all that. But for a career, he more wants to follow in the family footsteps of his beloved grandfather and his father and go into the law. So, Charlie being Charlie, he applies to Harvard Law, despite the fact that he doesn't have an undergraduate degree. Why should didn't that actually, stop him? Yeah, he didn't actually graduate from any of these institutions. And uh, he gets in and he goes to. Harvard Law. He does very well there. Graduates Phi Beta Kappa, and he decides after graduation he's thinking about going back to Omaha, but he decides, well, one, Pasadena was was really nice when I was there at Caltech. You know, the weather in LA is hard to beat, but also in typical Charlie fashion, he sort of asks himself a rhetorical question. He's like, hey, "Where can I be somebody?" And you know, Omaha is uh, obviously a Right. A rising town. Great city. But but it's not Los Angeles. He says, what city is is growing and full of opportunity so that I could make a lot of money, but not so big and well developed that it would be hard to rise into the ranks of the city's most prominent men, which, of course, Charlie wants to be among those ranks.
1: And it's, you're already seeing a massive departure in the sort of psychological makeup of Warren and Charlie here, where like, that was never a thing Warren cared about. It was like, how much money will I have on the scoreboard when I die? And like, I'm sure no matter where I live, that'll get compared to everyone else. And for Charlie, it was, you know, we're going to be a man about town and that town should be big enough to be worth being a man about town. And it's also funny to me that at this point, like LA is for him something that he views as like oh it's not too big yet
0: yeah well it wasn't i mean right after world war ii obviously it was a big town and hollywood had always been there but it i think california and particularly southern california experienced a huge population boom after world war ii of which charlie was part so very tragically after moving to la he had gotten married i think right after the war when he started at harvard And tragically, both his marriage is falling apart when he gets to L.A. Uh, And much more tragically, his son, Teddy, is diagnosed with leukemia. And in those days, there was no effective treatment for leukemia. Yeah, just tragic. It was totally tragic. And Teddy would end up passing away in 1955 at age nine, which is unimaginable to lose a child at all, let alone... In that way, and at that age, Charlie's reaction to this, I, I think, is very characteristic, very telling of who he is. Uh, he's obviously absolutely devastated, but he decides that the thing to do is he needs to set new goals for himself and move forward versus being consumed by grief. So he says, after uh, uh, about when reflecting on this time, he says, one of his Charlieisms, you should never. When facing some unbelievable tragedy, let one tragedy increase into two or three through your failure of will, which uh, is probably you know sound advice, not that I can imagine going through that.
1: That's also some incredible compartmentalization. I mean, if for imagine going and speaking to a person who's grieving right now and telling them, hey, don't let this turn into two or three cascading, what is it, failures or, or catastrophes it's sort of only something you can decide and tell yourself. And I think only if you are a person like Charlie.
0: Like Charlie. So he sets two very specific goals for himself. One, to find a new spouse, and two, to (laughs) diversify his business activities outside of law. (laughs) And so on one, uh, I thought this was so funny. He's really worried. He's now a divorced man and his thirties and in California. He doesn't know that many people out there. He goes through all the math of like how many women are there in California? How many would be of a marriageable age? How many are smart enough for me, but not too smart? Like (laughs) Of course, this is Charlie. So he happens on a foolproof strategy. He decides that he's going to do the most rational thing possible. He's going to start Every day, scanning the divorce and obituary notices in the paper, (laughs) (laughs) looking for widows and recent divorcees. Oh, my God. uh, I, I uh, I guess there weren't dating websites back in those days. So that's what you had to do. His friends are kind of alarmed by this. And one of his law partners introduces him to a woman named Nancy Borthwick, who was kind of fit all of his criteria, except maybe the not being uh too smart, she's quite smart. She was recently divorced. She was Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford undergrad in economics. She actually had an undergrad degree, unlike Charlie. <laughs> and most importantly, see, she took nobody's crap, including Charlie's. So they each of the two of them have two children, two surviving children from their previous marriages. They get married. They go on to have four more children together for an entire monger clan of 10 people eight children and two parents it's a lot of mongers that is a lot of mongers and uh if you see photos of them uh, of the monger clan to this day especially with all the grandchildren it is impressive it's like a small city
1: do you know the this is sort of like the thing that smacks you in the face the thing she had in common with his first wife
0: uh yes her
1: name <laughs> yeah they're both named nancy like <laughs> yeah in, in some ways, you're like, come on, that's pretty lazy. Like, you can't go marry someone again with your same... <laughs> someone once made a remark that Charlie was so sort of absent-minded and and forgetful of names that, thank God, his, uh, his second wife was also named Nancy, or he would have forgotten her name, too.
0: Yeah. Very Charlie. He is unique. So on goal number two, he's doing very well as a lawyer in LA. As you can imagine, Charlie is an excellent attorney, but he decides that... Uh, you know, even though he's having all this success, really the people who seem like they have the good life and who are really the sort of, you know, men and they're all men at this point about town are the clients. In particular, one of his clients is the mining magnet Harvey Mudd, who helped build Caltech into what it became and then helped build and found all of the Claremont colleges, including the one that bears his name, Harvey Mudd. He was one of Charlie's clients. So what does Charlie do? He starts buying some stocks himself, but he also starts taking some of his fees from his clients in equity in addition to ah. cash. Yeah, he's like a he's like the early, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, uh, entrepreneurial startup lawyer type that takes some <laughs> takes some equity in addition to cash for doing the deals. He also ends up getting into real estate, which real estate in Southern California in the post-war era was a great way to make a lot of money. He gets his net worth up to about one and a half million dollars by the early 60s, which if you remember from part one, he's like right neck and neck with Warren at this point in time.
1: And that's what, like 10, 15 million today? Yeah.
0: So it's certainly more than anybody would need to be living the good life of a man about town at this point.
1: Right. And you could imagine like someone in their mid thirties, like you could kind of just live off that interest forever if you wanted to put it into fixed income and, you know, kind of call it.
0: Totally, totally. Which, unlike Warren, Charlie's not necessarily against something like that. He's definitely enjoying himself in L.A. But along the way, as we alluded to in part one, the famous summer night in 1959 in Omaha, Charlie... Is back in town briefly to settle his father's estate. His father Al had passed away. And the Davises say, Ah, we're now, we're investors with this local guy, Warren. We've told him about you
1: three years ago. We met him. He seemed like you.
0: Let's set up a dinner and you guys can, we'll introduce you. You guys can meet. Both Warren and Charlie, I think, are skeptical going into this dinner. But the legend goes that they all sit down to dinner and it's like electric. Warren and Charlie hit it off right away, which I think is true. And then the legend goes that at this dinner, Charlie starts laughing at one of his own jokes so hard that he actually rolls (laughs) out of his chair onto the floor (laughs) and starts rolling around on the floor. Now, that is not true. But... It did happen later that week because Warren and Charlie got dinner together like every night that week after oh, that. Oh, wow. That they were there. And uh, yes, apparently, Charlie did actually start rolling on the floor of a restaurant at one of his own jokes.
1: Which is uh, the first of like many, like pretty funny quips about Charlie at dinner parties and his eating habits and his mildly self-absorbedness when it comes to these things. <laughs> There's another good one where He's been known to, as he's telling a story or opining on something, sometimes, of course, like he'll need to drink water. So as he sort of takes his glass and puts it up to his his mouth, he puts his hand out to stop anybody else from talking and holds his hands up until he's done taking a sip and then moves his (laughs) hand down so he can finish telling the story. Like this is a man that loves to talk. It doesn't come out as much in Berkshire meetings until you sort of get him going. But yes, in social situations, he is the center.
0: It's so funny because if you just watch the annual meetings, you would think that Charlie is the silent partner. <laughs> Nothing could be farther from the truth. So during this dinner, Warren and Charlie are like enraptured with each other, and as they go along, Charlie's getting more and more puzzled because all Warren is talking about is businesses, and companies, and investing. And Charlie loves this; he thinks this is great. But it wouldn't even cross any normal person's mind that this could be your job at this point in time you know like we talked about in part one like maybe a couple people in new york you know maybe ben graham could do this but the idea that somebody in omaha even somebody in la could do this as their full-time job uh, only warren was thinking this way at the time Hmm. so eventually charlie asked warren well (laughs) what do you do exactly for a living and uh buffett's like well you know i have these various uh Vehicles, these various partnership vehicles, because at this point he hadn't consolidated them all yet. These are all, he has like seven or eight different partnerships that he
1: invests from. And mind you, the setup is there's no fees. He's not drawing a salary from any of these.
0: Yep. He's just working out of his uh, spare bedroom at the house in Omaha, living off of his, what was it, $175,000 that he had when he left Graham Newman. So Charlie, though, this strikes him as brilliant. And he's like, he looks at Warren dead serious (laughs) for once. And he says, do you think I could do something like that out in California? And supposedly Warren, as chronicled, sits there and he he thinks for a minute. Because, you know, Warren is, you know, he's very polite. But like, he's also, especially with people he respects, you know, very honest and direct. And, you know, he, he doesn't think many people can do this. But he thinks and he says, you know yeah, I'm quite sure you could do this. and Charlie, you know, it changes his life this uh this dinner. He goes back to LA. he keeps practicing law. He's not ready to go all in yet on investing, but he raises some money, he starts a partnership, and he starts emulating Warren investing on his own out in Los Angeles. Susie Buffett, who is at the dinner, although a silent participant, says in a quote in The Snowball, she says, I think Warren felt that Charlie was the smartest person he'd ever met. And Charlie felt that Warren was the smartest person that he'd ever (laughs) met. Uh, And for the two of them, that was quite the high compliment. So, Margaret goes back to LA. He starts investing. He also leaves the law firm that he was at and starts a new law partnership, which was originally called Munger, Tolls, and Hills, later becomes Munger, Tolls and Olson, which to this very day does all of Berkshire's legal work and will become very instrumental in the story <laughs> at the end, as we shall see here. But he doesn't stay there long. He only stays at this new firm that he starts for three years. And then in 1965, he's doing so well investing that with Warren's encouragement, he actually leaves MTO and just like Warren becomes full-time Running his partnerships, investing.
1: And MTO, despite the fact that Charlie was only there three years, is still MTO today, right?
0: Still MTO today, yep.
1: Amazing. And I know that, like, like imagine starting a firm, naming it after yourself, and then leaving, and then all (laughs) of your partners and everyone else who works there asking you, hey, can we still keep it with your name on it?
0: And your name first.
1: Right. It's wild.
0: Totally wild. So... Charlie starts out in his sort of investing style, doing the cigar butts and the like, and he's talking to Buffett all the time. They're always on the phone. He's absorbing all the Ben Graham philosophy, but it quickly becomes clear that he's wired a different way. So he starts saying to Warren and some of their other friends, this line that is sort of puzzling to them. Charlie says, you know, I really, I just like great businesses and that that's like not computing with, with Warren and the rest of the crew.
1: And Warren's like, you mean mispriced assets or because that's what we're doing here. We're buying mispriced assets. And right. when you say great businesses, you know, what do you mean by that?
0: Right. I mean, even, you know, as we talked about last time, Warren when he gets a great business like a Geico or, you know, an Amex, he's still only thinking about them in terms of like the value that he can arbitrage out relative to their <laughs> hard asset net worth or their cash on the balance sheet charlie though so the story goes that what really gets him down this line of thinking is at one point he invests in a a caterpillar tractor dealership in southern california Hmm. and this becomes a total albatross because the problem was as the dealership you got to buy the tractors from caterpillar up front which cost a lot of money and then they don't turn over that fast they're just sitting on the lot and then every time one goes out the door, you got to put more capital up to buy a new one. It's like incredibly capital intensive. It's always tying, tying up capital. And if you want to grow, you want to add new stores, you got to invest in all the inventory up front. And so Charlie, ever the rationalist, he realizes that like, hey, wait a minute. The goal of owning a business should actually be, one, that the business spits out more cash than it consumes... And ideally, too, that it consumes as little cash as possible.
1: Right. That then when it spits off cash, that you actually can do something with that cash, not have to go buy more caterpillar pieces of machinery. He's like, I want to give you cash
0: once and very little of it. And then I want you to give me a lot more cash over time with me never giving you any more.
1: This is best paraphrased in the line from Poor Charlie's Almanac, which was an awesome source. Which is a better business? And it postulates there are two kinds of businesses. The first earns 12%, and you can take the profits out at the end of the year. The second earns 12%, but all the excess cash must get reinvested. There's never any cash. It reminds me of the guy who sells construction equipment. He looks at his used machines, taken it in as customers bought the new ones, and says, there's all my profit rusting in my yard. We hate that kind of business.
0: Totally. So... All right, Charlie's starting to think about this, and then he starts really going down the rabbit hole. He's like, "Well, what? How can you like achieve such a state in business?" And that leads him to th- think about this idea of competitive advantage. Like, this is all like probably seeming like duh, normal stuff to everyone now, but like nobody is thinking this way at the time. And what is competitive advantage? It's it's almost like a moat. It's like if your business is a castle, you have a moat around your castle so that nobody can attack it. It's a it's a reason why competitors can't come and arbitrage your differential profits away. It kind of sounds like Hamilton Helmer and Powers, right? (laughs) So Warren and Charlie are spending a lot of time together. Famously, Warren and Susie start vacationing in Southern California just so that Warren and Charlie can talk for hours. And when they come out, Warren's already a millionaire at this point. The family stays in a motel on Santa Monica Boulevard (laughs) and then commutes over, drives over to Pasadena. Of course. So... One, they're hanging out because they respect each other's intelligence. But two, Alice points out in the snowball, there's there's actually a second reason why Warren likes Charlie so much. And that's that as Warren's starting to get more and more known in Omaha and, and on the national scene for his investing track record, nobody's willing to tell him he's wrong anymore. Everybody's mm. super deferential to him. And as Alice puts it, Charlie's deference to Warren was limited by his high opinion of himself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And that is something that we start to see play out here in the late 60s, where, you know, Buffett was famously very shy about ever sharing investment ideas. I think, like, occasionally at that annual group that he would convene, of all the Ben Graham disciples, his fellow classmates, which he then started bringing Charlie into, that they would occasionally sort of Allude to some investing ideas they were thinking about. You know, maybe this business is interesting, but they would kind of talk around it. Warren really found in Charlie someone that he could literally present, here's the name that I'm thinking about, and start talking through the business and look for sort of holes in his thinking in a way that he never opened up to anyone else to ever say the name of a company he was thinking about buying.
0: Yep. Totally. That brings us back to at the same time, Charlie's starting to go down this different path in. Philosophy and Munger starts saying, and he says to Buffett, "He's like, hey, you're like obsessed with this Graham guy, and like I'll give it to you that that's a great strategy. It works. He met Graham at several points. This time, Graham also lives in Southern California by now. But he's like, hey, he's not God, <laughs> and there's a a flaw in the cigar butt thinking, which is that it you know it was driven by the environment that Graham." came of age in, in the Depression. And the quote from Charlie is that the flaw is that Graham believes that the future is more fraught with hazard than ripe with opportunity. And you know here in the post-war era in the US, especially in California, it's super hard to look out at the future and not see opportunity. So Charlie starts haranguing Warren about this. He says, (laughs) here's a great quote, because Warren is so good at explaining Ben Graham, he's behaving like the old Civil War veteran who after a few minutes of ordinary conversation always interjects, that reminds me of the Battle of Gettysburg. (laughs) In other words, Warren is falling victim to one of the oldest human misjudgment tendencies in the book, the man with a hammer syndrome.
1: And what's that like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Exactly. So
0: eventually, Charlie does start breaking through to Warren right around this time as Warren is shutting down the partnership. He's so, you know, he's so uh, depressed. He's worried about the market. He doesn't see opportunity ahead. He only sees hazard. But at heart, though, Warren is an optimist.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you're, 95% aligned with your teacher. It's easy to just try and do things exclusively their way, and it's only when you start really feeling yourself and feeling your your legs under you a little bit can you start saying, "Wait a minute, I am a little bit different and I can act, you know, as completely my own agent rather than following their playbook."
0: All right. So this leads us to the first big thing that Warren and Charlie do together, which is blue chip stamps. And I remember I used what I used to hear Warren and Charlie talk about blue chip stamps company. I thought this was like a quaint uh like stamp collecting store franchise, you know. I assumed that too, yeah. Exactly like a baseball card shop or something. No, this is totally not what this was. So this is some like wild Americana history.
1: And when we say the first thing they do together, we should be crystal clear here they are not Warren and Charlie on a stage the way that you see them today. There is Charlie who is doing Charlie's partnerships and Warren who's doing Warren's partnerships.
0: Yep. So what is blue chip stamps? So around the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century department stores used to hand out, this is crazy. They used to hand out stamps as like a bonus incentive for customers to pay cash for goods instead of buying on credit. So the idea was if you bought something with cash, the store then handed you a certain number of stamps, which you could paste into a booklet. And when you filled up the booklet, you could exchange it for like prizes, like redeem it for like a, you know, I don't know, like furniture or jewelry or like a bike for the kids or something like that.
1: They they did want to incentivize paying with cash because cash flow
0: exactly so this was a way to incentivize paying with cash so somebody had a brilliant idea that it would be better if you actually operated the stamp service as a separate business from anyone's store so that customers can get stamps from lots of stores and then like aggregate them get lots of stamps and then (laughs) redeem them for you know more prizes It sounds
1: so convoluted when you sort of explain it this way.
0: Totally. But this business turned out to have two extremely attractive qualities. One, it had float. So the stamps companies that were running the stamp operation, the businesses, the stores, they bought stamps in advance from the stamp company. So like you're a department store. You're like, I'm going to buy... $500,000 $500,000 worth of stamps that I'm then going to give out to my customers over time to incentivize them. And they, they buy it at a discount. Wow. So you
1: better keep those in a safe because those are like cash.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then the, they would give money, give US dollars to the stamp company in exchange for the stamps. And then the customers, you know, they would, of the store, they would get the stamps and then they would redeem them. There'd be breakage. You know, it could be years from the time the stamp company sold the roll of stamps yeah. to the store. Sounds like an insurance company. Exactly. Exactly. So there's float. <laughs> and then two, even better, there's network effects in this business. Two-sided network effect. Right. The more stores that use a given stamp system versus a, another one, the more consumers are going to be incentivized to buy at those stores because they want those stamps that they can redeem for big prizes, et cetera.
1: Right. Right. So yeah, consumers want more stores to support it. Stores want more consumers to use it. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yep. So <laughs> by the middle of the century,
0: there is one dominant national player in the stamp business, the s Green Stamps, except in California, where a bunch of stores had banded together and shut out s S&H and and launched their own stamp, the Blue Chip Stamp Company. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. I had no idea about any of this. So in 1963, S&H and the Department of Justice both sue blue chip for monopolistic practices. S&H is trying to get into California and recruits the DOJ. Why the DOJ wasn't like, hey, S&H, you're a monopoly too. But anyway, (laughs) regulatory capture, I guess. Yep. So the stock gets pummeled when these lawsuits happen. but. Munger's heard about this in LA and he tells Buffett and also their friend, Rick Guerin, who's part of the Graham group, which becomes the Buffett group. Remember, Munger's like a highly, highly experienced, top-notch lawyer, corporate lawyer. He says, what's going to happen here is blue chip itself is going to be fine, but the government, what they'll do, what the DOJ will do, they're going to force all of the California store chains that collectively own blue chip to divest it. Mm. and who better to buy it than us huh so indeed that is what happens in 1968 blue chip agrees to a consent decree with the doj where the stores have to sell off 45 percent of the company and boom <laughs> combination of munger garen and buffett all snap up 45 ish percent in blue chip
1: and of course like this sounds complicated to me because each of them represent a different shareholder base. They're sort of talking to each other. It feels like something could be fishy there. Yeah, it, it could be. It could be. <laughs>
0: uh, as uh, the line we shall see in a minute is, there's got to be an indictment in there somewhere. <laughs> okay. So now we're in 1970. Warren has just unwound his partnership and distributed out shares of Berkshire diversified retailing which was a jv essentially that he had with munger's partnership to invest in department stores ill-fated idea and then blue chip and remember warren told his partners in the letter where he said he announced that he was winding down the partnership that he intended to buy more of all of these companies well he does
1: and so just to be super crisp here, Warren owns some Berkshire, but Charlie doesn't own any Berkshire at this point. This is 19, 1970. I think none at this point. They've created the JV of diversifieds. So they're definitely in that together. And they both sort of share this idea about blue chip. So they both are big holders of blue chip as well.
0: Yep. So after Warren winds down the partnership, he buys so much stock in these three companies from his former partners that... His ownership of Berkshire doubles from 18% to 36%. His ownership of Diversified doubles from 20% to 39%. And he buys so much blue chip that he goes from 2% to 13% ownership in blue chip, just personally. (laughs) So Susie's like, oh no, (laughs) second retirement is going to look exactly like the first (laughs) retirement here.
1: And this really was the case, right? He was like, I'm winding down my partnerships. I'm I'm done. What was the line? Something about his style and sensibilities no longer being suited to the current environment. And yet here he is heavying up on these three stocks.
0: Yep. So Warren isn't the only one buying (laughs) these stocks. Berkshire itself starts buying blue chip. So pretty soon, Berkshire, Warren owns 13% of blue chip. Berkshire. Holds seventeen percent of blue chip, diversified owns sixteen percent of blue chip, <laughs> and Munger's partnership on his own owns eight percent, and Garen owns five percent. So sixty percent of blue chip is owned by these six different entities, all of which also own stock in each other.
1: Now, listeners, if you're feeling like this is convoluted and you know a little bit messy and I don't know, maybe even like they might be sort of hiding something with the lack of simplicity here. So does the SEC,
0: which we will get to in one sec. But ironically, while they're doing all of this buying, they're just so like thrilled at the prospects of what they're doing. The actual business of blue chip enters a major secular decline. So during the decade of the 1970s, Blue Chip's core business, even though they settled the DOJ suit, the core business declines 90% over the decade because consumers are just not that interested in stamps anymore. Credit cards are becoming a thing. It seems like an outdated Mm kind of thing. So the business is declining.
1: Then why were were they so excited about buying the stock? Just because it was at historical lows and they felt like it was a low multiple of the profits it was generating? I think the other part of it is the float. So just like Berkshire, Mm. Blue Chip is
0: declining in its core business, but it's still got this super attractive float dynamic.
1: And if they don't own it outright, like why is that attractive? Because they can't use that. They can't take the cash out from the float to use it for something else, right?
0: Right, right. They can't take the cash out of Blue Chip, but they can redeploy it within Blue Chip. Mm. So they say, hey, let's run the Berkshire playbook that Warren, you just did with Berkshire. Let's start looking for other operating businesses to go buy with our float here at Blue Chip. So they tell Blue Chip's president, a guy named Bill Ramsey, to start looking about for, for companies to acquire. And one day in 1971, he calls Warren and Charlie and he's like, hey, I've got a, I've got a pretty interesting acquisition target here. It's a small little family company here in LA called C's Candy. And so Warren and Charlie come in, they start looking at the company and it's actually pretty interesting. So C's people love it It becomes wildly popular across California starts expanding. They develop a slogan that uh, they want to be known for C's quality, which is supposed to be even better than top quality. You've got like high ah. quality, top quality and then C's quality. It's so ubiquitous in California that, you know, the famous I Love Lucy episode where... Um,
1: Already know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you definitely know this. It's like one of the most famous moments in television in the 50s where Lucy and Ethel are working in the chocolate factory and they're on the production line. They're supposed to like wrap the chocolates as they go by and the chocolates start going so fast that they can't keep up and they're like stuffing the chocolate all like in their clothes. And...
1: Oh, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It was modeled after a C's... Oh, that's Candy awesome. factory. So the problem with C's, though, from Warren and Charlie's perspective, is it is decidedly not a cigar butt. So the factory and the stores and the hard assets on the books are valued at five million dollars, but C's already has an offer on the table for thirty million dollars. So this like fails every Ben Graham test in the book.
1: It's so crazy to me this like notion of cigar butt that that like you're trying to pay. Less than literally just the property, plant, and equipment, effectively, and like we're not even talking about, you know, profit multiples here. We're literally just talking about like, well, are they asking you to pay more than than the liquid value of all their assets? And like, oh no, six times the property, plant, and equipment. Ah, too far afield for me.
0: But this is where, remember, we were talking about Charlie starting to get this tingling about great businesses, and he's influencing Warren. He's like, hey, Warren. Let's actually look at the revenue and like earnings side of the equation here. This company is doing $4 million in annual pre tax profit, and that's growing at 12% per year without putting any more capital into the business. Like, this is, it might actually be worth paying this
1: price. So then what? That's about 8X trailing 12 months profit multiple
0: totally I mean imagine that like, that's
1: the offer yeah that's the offer
0: right on the table so Warren of course he hems and haws about it and he's like, ah, well, I can't do 30 but we could offer 25 million <laughs> and he the only reason he justifies it to himself at this point is he thinks well, they probably have pricing power because people love the candy so much so if we raise the prices, maybe I can get comfortable Ah, with
1: this. (laughs) This is sort of the like brand notion that he's learned at this point of, hey, there actually is a thing that doesn't show up on the balance sheet that has value. Yep.
0: He's starting to come around. So they do get the deal done with the family. Blue Chip buys C's for $25 million. And over the ensuing years, this little candy company delivers over $2 billion dollars in free cash flow to first blue chip. And then when it would get absorbed into Berkshire Hathaway for a purchase price of 25 million, this is the first time that this concept of a, a wonderful business at a fair price versus a a fair business at a wonderful price (laughs) is executed by Warren and and with Charlie's influence. And uh, Warren, after A brief period of time of seeing the C's operating results becomes a total comfort. So he would say later uh, about this idea that it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. He says, Charlie understood this early. I was a slow learner. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Love it.
0: Meanwhile, Charlie is also learning from Warren that managing other people's money maybe isn't so great. So Charlie's partnership before 1971, 72 had done not quite Buffett levels of performance, but generated 28.3% IRRs for the first decade, which is still fabulous performance.
1: But not as steady as Warren. That's the thing to notice about Charlie. He did lose money some years.
0: He did. He had some real big years and some down years. And then in 73 and 74, Charlie's partnership falls 31.9% and then 31.5%. Oof! and uh this is super scarring for charlie he feels like he's gotta like if he can get almost like warren and his sister been <laughs> the first stock he bought back in the day he's like if i can get the partnership level back to roughly what it was i'm gonna work like hell to do that but then i'm out so he does that in 75 he returns 73.2 percent on the partnership in 75 and then he winds it down he's out he says you know what Warren's having a good time with this uh, this Berkshire model. I'm going to do the same thing here with Lee Chip.
1: Yep. And the difference being, you know, Charlie was still running other people's money at that point. And I think he was doing a more traditional model, management fees and effectively carried interest or some kind of promote that he was getting above some certain hurdle. But, you know, in that business, when you're losing money, you feel it really hard because you're being judged on that performance. Whereas with Warren the only other stakeholders that he had to think about were the the other shareholders in those businesses. But Warren had made no promise to them of I'm going to be effective with your capital. It was, you know, the structure was look, I'm invested in this company, this C Corp. You're invested in this company, this C Corp. Like you can get out at any time. I'm not managing your money for you. And so he just has all this. He is the weight off his shoulders. He can only lose his own money. There's no one else to be mad at him. And, uh, you know, if he does well, it's just for himself, but he's got a lot of money. So he can, he has the firepower of a lot of capital without it being other people's capital. Yep. And if
0: the stock goes down, great. He might just buy more of the stock. Like he doesn't need to feel terrible about it. He's not
1: going to put up a negative number at the end of the year for someone.
0: Right. He, does want to make sure that berkshire never goes out of business that's incredibly important to him but yeah any given year's performance doesn't really matter that's right. not how he looks at things anymore all right in 1971 back when they were starting to look at c's warren and charlie for blue chip bill ruane from the Sequoia fund calls up warren and says hey next time you're in new york I want to set you up with one of my classmates from HBS. This guy that I really think you'll enjoy meeting. Why don't you get dinner with him? His name is Tom Murphy. This
1: is probably the fourth episode that Tom Murphy's come up on and acquired.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about Tom Murphy or Murph as he was known and uh, is known. He's still alive. I think he's 95. I think. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Amazing. And his partner, Dan Burke, who of course ran Cap Cities and we talked all about them on the ESPN episode and turned it into this incredible media empire that today is like pretty much what at least 50% of Disney more
1: uh yeah I think that's
0: right ESPN yep ABC all the television stations and they do it all with no further capital investment after that one TV station with one very large and notable exception that we're going to talk about in a few minutes here. So they get together and Warren is immediately impressed with Murph and with Capital Cities. And he just loves everything about this business. And of course, he's already familiar with the media industry. He's intimately familiar with the newspaper industry. He knows a little bit about the, if not television, the sort of moving picture aspect of the media business because of maybe the second biggest investing mistake that he made after Intel, which we intentionally skipped over in part one to have the big reveal here. Ben, what is the unbelievable company that in addition to Geico, in addition to Amex, Buffett had briefly owned 5% of during his partnership days?
1: Disney, the freaking guy owned Disney and he sold it like after what, two years or something of, of owning it when it reached its, uh, you know, w- what he felt was a good price for him to get out.
0: Unbelievable. So <laughs> yeah, I think it was, uh, I think it was one year. So in 1966, Disney had been trading at an $80 million market cap, the Walt Disney Company <laughs> at an $80 million market cap. And it's not like Disney was much smaller back then. Like it was still... Freaking Walt Disney, and uh, it had the theme parks and everything. Mary Poppins had just came out and made thirty million dollars at the box office, and the stock went down because Wall Street was like, "Oh well, movies—that's a hits-driven business." You know, the next couple of years, comps are going to be real tough after that. Mary Poppins,
1: like Mary Poppins, just made thirty million dollars in revenue, and the whole company is valued at a market cap of eighty million.
0: Yes, yes, unbelievable. Warren, though, being smart, being Warren, he's like, wait a minute, it's Mary Poppins. They're going to be able to generate revenues for years after this. Like kids aren't only going to want to see Mary Poppins once and in one year. Every generation of kids is going to want to see this thing, Have it, take it out of the Disney vault. So he values the company in his head just off Mary Poppins. <laughs> he's like, the theme parks, all the other movies, let's assume all that's zero. That's my margin of safety. <laughs> he thinks that it's still worth more than $80 million just on Mary Poppins. He puts $4 million of partnership capital into Disney, buys 5% of the company. And then, of course, Warren being Warren at the time, within a year, he's made $2 bucks on that. He's made a 50% return, and he sells the whole thing.
1: My God. What's the quote, quote, better to be approximately right than precisely wrong? Like, sure, he was approximately right, but you have to stretch that approximately pretty far to be like it was the right decision for you to get out of that business. I I mean, okay. so the principle of that quote is, look, there's no way that you're going to be able to exactly know the intrinsic value of the company. So you you will never know exactly what you should pay for it, either on your entry price or your exit price. So... You know, it's the margin of safety idea that you should be approximately right. So if you can get a big margin of safety, then you're sort of okay on the entrance price and you're okay on the exit price, even if they're not precisely correct. Well, like, you were way, way off on what the intrinsic value of this enterprise could be. And like, sure, you made money, but this is the sin of, I suppose, it's omission because it's that he didn't continue to make money. In in a way, it's commission because he actually had to act to sell the stock but gosh how how different his net worth would be and and who knows about berkshire's future but if he had continued to hold five percent of disney at that point
0: totally i mean geico amex disney we're not even talking about intel these are all companies that buffett owned like a meaningful percentage of in his very early days and uh didn't hang on to them.
1: No, all right. So he knows about the moving picture business from owning yep. a little bit of Disney. So
0: he's sitting down. He's sitting down with Murph.
1: He and Murph are are hashing it out, and Murph says to him what
0: Murph says after the dinner. Murph is so impressed with Warren's, you know, sort of like management investing mind. Like these are two people cut from the same cloth. He decides that he wants Warren to join his board. So he flies out to Omaha. He makes a pilgrimage to go see Warren, and he says, "Hey, I really want you to join the capital city's board."
1: He would have been really impressed with Warren's head office.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Like if you think about how Capital Cities was like incredibly lean, uh, this is like the only person who would walk into Warren Buffett's office, look around and be like, "Awesome. Love it."
0: I think there's some famous story. Didn't we tell on the ESPN episode about how they only painted the fronts of their buildings and not the sides oh, in the back? That. that sounds right though. <laughs> uh, amazing. So Warren's like, "Look, Tom, I love you and Dan, but honestly, the the only way that I can join your board is if I were to own a, a large chunk of your company. Uh, <laughs> and this is like a, an, an impasse because just like Warren, Tom equally feels like issuing stock is the ultimate sin and he refuses to do it. So they agree that they're just going to be friends. They will turn to each other for advice on their various businesses for the time being. But- there's not going to be any any formal relationship. It was also quite convenient of Warren to do this because he knew that the FCC rules were such that they would not let anybody be on the board of multiple different companies that owned television stations mm. around the country. And Warren's got his eye on another company that owns some television stations the Washington Post Company.
1: Ah, right. I didn't realize. I forgot they, they had gotten into TV at this point already.
0: Yep, they had. They had. So uh, his boyhood dream, his paper route. And the reason <laughs> he's got his eye on the post is they've just done a public offering.
1: And what what so year is this?
0: This is 1971.
1: 71. Okay. So still only like a year or two after he's wound down the partnership. To,
0: he's still in retirement mode.
1: Here's a little early carve-out, too. For anyone who, who wants an unbelievably good sort of dramatic telling of that IPO and the events around it, go go watch The Post with uh, with Meryl Streep. The Post.
0: Oh, it's so good. We definitely have to do a whole episode on The Washington Post company at some point. But suffice to say for now that the story is equally, if not more, amazing than The New York Times company. The short version of it is that heading into the IPO... The Post has been in the Meyer slash Graham family for 40 some odd years at this point. The CEO of the Post, but not the chairman, the CEO is a woman named Catherine Graham, who her story is just probably many folks have heard of her is just amazing. Watch the Post and and we will tell it someday. But she assumes the role of publisher and CEO at age 46 with four children having never worked a job in her life. And goes on to become one of the greatest CEOs in American history. You know, sees the paper through the Pentagon Papers, through the Watergate scandal, grows the value of the company enormously. She was one of the CEOs that Will Thorndike profiles in uh, in the Outsiders yep. book. Yeah, so great. So Warren sees all this from the outside. He's got the attachment to the post. The IPO is happening, and he says, "This is going to be my my opportunity to come back." So he reaches out to her initially with an idea. He wants to tread carefully. He's very respectful of Kay and and the Graham family and what they've built. He also knows that it's a dual class share structure. So they have control. Like there's no, no matter how much stock he buys, like there's no, Mm -hmm. all the decisions in the company are getting made by the Graham family, just like at the New York Times. So he reaches out with an idea and says, I've heard that the New Yorker, the magazine is for sale. Would you be interested in maybe doing a 50, 50 bid JV to
1: buy it together? And she has no interest in that, right? Like yeah, the- she
0: has there. She's like, I'm learning how to be a CEO here. <laughs> We're taking the company public. The Pentagon papers are happening. Uh, no, v- very nice to meet you, Mr. Buffett from Omaha, but thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but Warren's like, it's like, okay. I've gotten to know her. I've, I've got my foot in the door. Two years later, the person who was chairman of the Washington Post company, Fritz Beebe, who I believe was a longtime family lawyer uh, of the Myers and the Grams, he dies and his estate is being liquided, of which there's a lot of post stock in it. And Warren arranges to buy a 50,000 share block from the estate. <laughs> and, Which uh,
1: you know has to has to feel underhanded, right? Like if you're the grand family, you're like, sorry, wait, who's buying what?
0: Yeah, who What this guy at Omaha? And he'd also been buying on the open market, too. And he now owns five percent of the company. So when he's having <laughs> dinner with Murph, he's like he's already got his his plans in motion here. So he writes Kay a letter. Remember, they've already met. He says, This purchase represents a sizable commitment to us being Berkshire, and an explicitly quantified compliment to the post as a business enterprise and to you as its chief executive. Writing a check separates conviction from conversation. I recognize that the post is gram-controlled and gram-managed, and that suits me fine.
1: Huh. So you already sort of get this beginning of him wanting to be a wonderful, sort of an owner of wonderful businesses without controlling them and leaving sort of family owners in control.
0: Exactly. Uh, He wants to be a partner to great managers and stewards of generational businesses. Kay, nevertheless, probably rightly is uh, a little spooked.
1: I bet. You get an activist investor who suddenly sends you a letter and says, by the way, I own 5% of your company.
0: Yep, and, uh, and you're just so great. And, uh, it suits me fine that you control it.
1: It probably also is known at this point the way that he sort of uh, raided the textile mill company of Berkshire Hathaway. If you go
0: digging on Warren, you can find some skeletons in the closet. Yep. So she agrees to meet with him briefly when she's out in Los Angeles. And Warren's thrilled. She shows up at the meeting famously looking like Kay. She's, you know, kate graham she's like one of the most prominent stately stately one of the most prominent people in the washington social scene she's probably the most powerful
1: woman in america at this point in time hanging out with presidents yeah
0: first name basis with yes everybody in washington and warren shows up looking like you know the bedraggled uh wrong size suit uh you know guy from omaha from the hills (laughs) And she thinks this is just hilarious. They hit it off right away in this second meeting. And she says, you know what? Maybe this Warren guy isn't so bad. Why don't you come back out, meet with me again in Washington? So he comes back out to Washington, uh, shows up right in the middle of the Watergate proceedings where Kay and her publisher, Ben Bradley, pulled an all-nighter the night before making decisions about what to publish about Watergate. But she still makes time for him. They go out to lunch, and then afterward, Buffett presents her with a contract that he's had drawn up that legally binds him and Berkshire that they will never buy another share of the post without the Graham family's permission. By the way, mm. by that time, Warren already owns 12% of the company because he's kept buying.
1: In exchange for what? Like, Why, why would he say just we voluntarily not in exchange for any he
0: just he he just really wants to be on Kay's good side and he he really really wants to be on the washington post board and so he's kind of presenting i think he uses the term the uh, he invokes little red riding hood and the the wolf he says you know i may look like the big bad wolf but we're gonna take the fangs right out of the wolf i'm never gonna buy another share <laughs> without your agreement i've had this contract drawn up it's kind of funny but Kay loves it and uh they seal the deal. She says, well, okay, then, you know, I'll start calling you for advice. And what Warren really wanted her to say was, why don't you join the board then as a 12% mm. owner of the company? But she doesn't. Warren desperately wants to get on the board.
1: And, and why does he want to get on the Is it an emotional thing? Or is it, I mean, we haven't talked about why Warren views a paper like this as such an incredible business. Is it, is it worth taking a moment on that?
0: I think the board thing specifically is probably an emotional thing, but the paper, yeah, at this point, it's not only the dominant paper in Washington, but it's the, you know, one of the foremost publications in the country, if not the world after the Pentagon Papers and the Watergate scandal.
1: So it both has that franchise effect in Washington. I mean, it is the paper for that city, which I think this comes from a little bit of a different story with the Buffalo Evening News, which I I don't think we'll get to today. But Buffett famously referred to uh, being the only paper in town or the biggest paper in town as an unregulated toll booth that you have where you basically have pricing power and everybody's going to subscribe to the newspaper. So, you know, it's it's a license to print money. So there's definitely his notion of a franchise town newspaper is awesome. This is one of the ones in the most important town in America. And now it has this national, international reach, um, not to mention all of these sort of great characteristics of a media business where you create the content once and then it's infinitely replicatable. And of course, there's delivery costs, but it's a freaking good business that's wonderfully defensible.
0: Yeah. And I think specifically on that defensibility of the newspaper part of the business at the time... And the 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 winner take all network effect in in any given geography is that if you're able to amass enough readers, it's just like the stamps business. Then the advertisers want to be where the majority of the readers are, and once you get the ad dollars flowing in from the advertisers, then you can offer deals. It's like it's like the group buying clones in 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 China. You can offer subscription deals to enough subscribers to grow your subscriber base Mm -hmm. that you can crowd out all the competition and the market just naturally tips to a single player. And that's happening in Washington, in a large city. So this is a fantastic newspaper franchise.
1: All right. So he's built himself a 12% position. He really likes the company. He wants to get on the board, but he's not on the board.
0: He's not on the board. What happens next is like a middle school dance. It's hilarious. So he doesn't have the courage to say to Kay in the meeting well hey I'd really like to join the board and I presented you with this contract instead he calls up Murph and he says, you know gosh Murph I really want to want to join the the board of the Washington Post but Kay doesn't seem to be getting the message do you think you could go see her and you know, tell her what uh, how great a guy I am, and you know that that I'm really not so bad, and and I really do want to join the board if she would just ask me. Wow! So, Murphy Dom goes to CK and tells her, and she's like, "Oh my, well, yeah, um, I, I guess it would be nice to have him on the board. I really respect him. Well, but I can't really just send him a letter and ask him. Like, he, he should really ask me." <laughs> <laughs> so Warren is like, I'm gonna invite Kay out to. By this point in time, he and Susie have a house in Emerald Bay in Laguna Beach in in Orange County in California. I'm gonna invite Kay out to a weekend at the the family house in in California, and I'm gonna be like, it's gonna be perfect. I'm gonna host Kay, the socialite. Make it perfect for her, and you know at the end of the weekend, then I'm gonna make the ask <laughs> to join the board. So he's really putting on a show for Kay. She comes out, she's a little puzzled. the whole weekend goes by. he doesn't ask, he doesn't ask, and then on Sunday morning, Kay finally turns to Warren and says, "So I hear you want to join the board." <laughs> but I'm not sure, you know, I'm waiting for the right time to do it, to bring it to my other board members. And supposedly Warren, you know, looks at her with longing eyes and says, Kay, when is the right time then? (laughs) And they fall into each other's arms and she says, Oh, join my board. And this is the beginning of a immense friendship between them. They become incredibly close for the rest of Kay's life. They go to events together They spend weeks at a time together in each other's houses, in each other's apartments in various cities. It's never been written whether this relationship was purely platonic or also romantic. Unsure, but it certainly becomes an amazing relationship. Warren would stay on the board of the Post for most of the next 37 years. Oh,
1: I didn't realize it was that long.
0: Yep. So the... 12% stake that Buffett bought for Berkshire cost $10 million. And in 2014, to put a bow on the Post investment, Berkshire sells its stake in what is then Graham Holdings, all the rest of the Washington Post businesses after Mm -hmm. Bezos buys the Post itself. Berkshire sells its stake for $1.1 billion which is only a 12% IRR from the initial $10 million investment. However, the post had also been paying dividends all throughout those oh wow. you know, 40, 50 years. So I don't have the data on total dividend return Berkshire received in cash flow and dividends from the post, but suffice to say it was an excellent investment
1: on Warren's part. So 10 million for 1.2 billion, 1.1, 1.1. Wow. By that point it's funny it's actually not a big holding for Berkshire uh relative to to everything else they own by the time they they uh Bezos buys the post.
0: Yeah. And you know Bezos ends up buying the post I think for 250 million something like that. When that happens in 2014, 2013, 2014 certainly the value of the post during the heyday of the newspapers of the 90s and 2000s was much 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 higher than that and the cash flow that it was spitting off that and sending back to Berkshire. other shareholders was significant
1: did you hear by the way a little easter egg that in the in the annual meeting one of the the questions that becky quick from cnbc was uh written in by don graham no i didn't see that
0: yep amazing don of course being Kay's son who would take over uh i think he became ceo before her death
1: and then and then after her death became chairman and ceo too funny all right so that's the post so let's reset a little bit on time frame and sort of Warren's evolution here. Everything's not yet consolidated under Berkshire, right? Like who was accumulating the shares of the post?
0: So that was Berkshire.
1: Okay. But he's got this whole blue chip stamp thing going on. Yep. And diversified.
0: And so we've been alluding to the hot water that they get into with the feds. So right as Charlie's closing down his partnership.
1: And this is like 75-ish? 75,
0: yep, in 75. He and Warren get a call from one of Charlie's former partners at MTO, Chuck Rickerhauser, who had done the C's deal for them. And Chuck says, hey guys, I just got off the phone with the SEC, and they're considering pressing charges against you for securities violations for this Russian doll, you know, version of <laughs> corporate structure that you've got going on here. And he famously tells them Chuck would spend like weeks putting together a corporate flowchart of all these different entities and who owns what. We'll, we'll try and link to an image of it in the show notes. It's amazing. There's so many different subsidiaries and sub-entities and he looks at it and he says there's got to be an indictment in here somewhere, guys. <laughs> I don't know what you've been doing, but...
1: I remember reading this when when I was doing the research and the Buffett image that you know of today, this sort of folksy, near benevolent, um, multi-billionaire or multi-deca-billionaire, I don't even know the right phrase for it, would be 100-billionaire if it wasn't donating so much to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that he was in hot water with the SEC. Like, it's just the last thing that I would have expected uh, as sort of the... Buffett novice before I started doing the research.
0: It's still, total- when I was reading about this, I was picturing Warren and Charlie like Tupac and uh, picture me rolling and the, the <laughs> federales want to see him dead. <laughs> and
1: now David Rosenthal, that is an image I can never unsee.
0: You can never unsee that. But it's so apt. Literally the feds are like, I don't know what's going on here, but like, I don't like it.
1: Clue me in. It was something to do with the fact that they ended up paying more yeah. For something when they could have actually paid less.
0: My understanding is I think the feds had sort of been on the tail because Warren especially is, you know, now becoming so known. He's 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 high profile, right? Like he's on the board of the Washington Post. Like how much more high profile with agencies right. in Washington can you get? So the investigation comes to center on a company called Wesco Financial that Blue Chip had bought after Seas. They'd kept looking for other great businesses, and that they'd bought a stake in
1: Wesco. And this some kind of bank? It's like a financial services business at this point? Yeah, it was, it was a
0: financial services business in Southern California. And what happened was there was another company, I think like Santa Barbara Financial Corporation or something like that, Financial Corporation of Santa Barbara, that had a buyout offer for Wesco. And Warren and Charlie thought it was undervalued and... Had sort of stepped in and scuttled the merger, and ended up investing through Blue Chip in Westco instead. So there was still a stub kind of. They public. basically
1: backstop the price because they're like, "Look, yeah. we already we hold a bunch of this already. We're not going to let you buy it for this really cheap per share price. So we're going to come in. We're going to lead another investment round, effectively in it, or buy some more of it at a higher price to make it so that like you're not going to get away with this steal that you're yep. you're coming in. And
0: so the way it goes down is they, through their work in convincing, you know, the board and the family that owned most of Wesco, they convince them to drop the merger. When the merger drops, the the Wesco stock falls, of course. Mm. And that's when Warren and Charlie invest, but they feel bad about tanking the stock price. So they decide, they they work out a deal with the company and with the family that they'll buy shares and invest. I can't remember if it was at the merger price or maybe even slightly above. And the feds are like, wait a minute, there's gotta be something shady going on here because like, A, you scuttled the merger, B, you then could have just bought the stock for lower, but you paid this artificially high price. What's going on?
1: Every other time we're investigating someone, what they ended up doing was buying the stock as cheap as possible after they precipitated an event that made the stock price fall
0: so they're very confused so warren ends up getting subpoenaed and testifies that they paid the price they did because quote it was important how wesco management feels about it now you can say well we own the controlling interest so it doesn't make any difference but lou vincenti who is the president of wesco He doesn't really need to work for us. If he felt that we were, you know, slobs or something, it just wouldn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And Munger, when he's testifying, (laughs) he, of course, invokes who else but Ben Franklin (laughs) in his testimony. He says, we didn't feel our obligation to the shareholders was inconsistent with leaning over backward to be fair. We have that Ben Franklin idea that the honest policy is the best policy it had sort of a shoddy mental image to us to try to reduce the
1: price. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like the notion of like the VC founder friendly thing where we're saying, hey, look, like, Let's take a super long lens here and say that the way that we're going to maximize value for everyone, including ourselves uh, way down the line, is by making sure that management likes us as shareholders and feels that we're, you know, deferential to them and not not capturing every little bit of value we possibly can out of their company at at their expense.
0: yep. And he's totally right. This is something I'd always wondered, you know, from afar looking at Berkshire, they buy these companies that are, if not wholly family owned businesses uh, many of them are public companies but have a large family controlling ownership like wesco like the like the post they buy these companies and then the family or the current management often stays on and keeps working there and i'm like why would why would they do that and this is the key why because they're not just trying to like they're playing the long game you know they what they really want is great managers who've built great companies to stay running them and the way to do that isn't to you know negotiate every last dollar out of them
1: or, or even if it is like i think some of i think we're conflating two things here a little bit i think berkshire does make sure they get a great deal when they buy a family owned business outright you know they they they're good at buying low but they either just believe that the business has so much future upside in it that they're they're willing to you know meet in the middle on price or they are very good at identifying managers who have a splinter in their mind to continue to do the work. Like there's something about, they're very good at this shrewdly evaluating, even if this person no longer holds a, a, a single share of their company, are they going to show up for work every day because this is their life's mission and purpose? And, uh, you know, I'm not totally, I don't think that's what was going on in the, the Wesco financial situation, but I think when they buy these family-owned businesses, there's a lot of that in the evaluation of the business.
0: And they, they definitely compensate those managers well yeah. for their continued performance. And I think that was like part of it here too, because it's almost like this is part of the upfront compensation is the price that they're going to pay right for the company.
1: Th- this whole thing sucks though. Like, there, are, this is like a multi-year, drawn-out thing with the SEC, where like it's hard for them to get on with their business in every yep. other facet because they have this thing going on.
0: Not to mention, it's not great for their reputation when they're going out trying to talk to the k-grams of the world mm-hmm. and saying hey no fangs here when the sec is investigating them so they end up sort of coming to this gentleman's agreement with the feds where blue chip which had which had been the primary player in the west coast saga although i think berkshire and maybe diversified were also buying shares too of course which was part of the problem promises not to do it again something like this
1: uh it's like no admission of guilt but we also won't do it again but
0: we we didn't we won't admit that we did it but if we did do it we won't do it again (laughs) and most importantly warren and charlie agree to start taking steps to quote simplify this complicated rat's nest structure of companies that they have so right off the bat they finally merge diversified into berkshire which they had wanted to anyway and by this point diversified owns a large chunk of berkshire shares charlie gets installed as the chairman of wesco to be sort of more arm's length than warren and they make it a goal to merge blue chip into berkshire as soon as all of the remaining kind of legal suits wind up and, and settle here that actually takes a while but it finally does happen in 1983 Wow, that really took a while then. It really does take a while, yeah. I'm not sure exactly why, but especially since the SEC wants them (laughs) to merge it all into one company, Yeah, and Warren and Charlie want to as well, for whatever reason. It takes
1: until 1983. All right, so they're making an effort to clean things up. They've got this SEC thing behind them. It's the late 70s. There's another chapter on the horizon for Berkshire. Oh,
0: Oh, yes. Is there ever? And indeed... It is a chapter involving an old flame, the original <laughs> crush of Warren's. This is like I think this is the thing about Warren. You know, I don't know about his romantic life and situation. It's it's certainly also complicated. There's a lot about that in The Snowball and, and elsewhere, not the scope of our show to get into, but he certainly has like a serial love affairs with companies. <laughs>
1: Well, and somehow there's all these businesses that he has like a romantic flame for from his childhood and from various parts of his life that just so happen to be these like unbelievable businesses where like it's a furniture mart or it's the soda he drank growing up or it's the newspaper he delivered and like investing in each and every one of those proves to be like a once in a generation unbelievable business. It's almost like um, Big Fish in a way. Like this man's life is just surrounded with these like 6 sigma events of like yeah. these really crazy or Forrest Gump or like what are the odds that the smartest guy that the army ever surveyed or the air force ever surveyed in that generation IQ wise happened to also be born in Omaha and then get introduced to him by work a, at
0: the grocery store
1: It's just crazy. Work yeah, work for his grandpa.
0: Yeah. Oh, and it's also funny that like Warren and Char- more Warren here than I think Charlie. He's so smart and so analytical. Like, you know, Charlie Munger thinks he's the smartest Warren is the smartest person he's ever met. That's saying something. At the same time, Warren is also so emotional and nostalgic and has this. I think you said it on the last episode, this sense of like, you know, what he looks for in companies and what he absolutely wants to be himself is like viewed as an artist painting a painting. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're talking here about Geico.
1: This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So
0: Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers.
1: Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller.
0: The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. As opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens, because they are doing everything in their clouds.
1: Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com/acquired. That's c r u s o e cloud.com/acquired, or click the link in the show notes.
0: In the intervening, at this point, it's like twenty years or so, two decades since Buffett had tragically sold his Geico stake. The company grew immensely. It made the acquired like growth in its target market. When we went from just acquisitions to just t- to telling the story of all great companies, <laughs> I was like where are you
1: going there? here
0: <laughs> <laughs> when it moves? <laughs> Beyond just targeting government employees to opening up to anybody, uh, non-government employees can also get their auto insurance through Geico,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this is huge. The problem, though, was that in chasing this growth in this new market, the tight underwriting and pricing of risk of all of these new customers didn't quite keep pace. Ba-na-na. If you remember, one of the reasons why Geico was such a great business was through the customers that they were targeting as government employees, for whatever reason or another, happened to be much, you know, safer drivers than the average population.
1: It's a known data set, it's a pretty homogeneous group, and you know, it's a lower risk homogenous group.
0: Totally. So they didn't really update their pricing enough as they've broadened out to Rest of the population. And as we talked about last time in insurance, there is never any such thing as a bad risk, but there is such a thing as a bad price. And the doubly compounding problem for an insurance company when you've been mispricing your risk over many years is that just like you get the amazing benefits of the float business model where you get the money up front, you get to use the money before you need to pay out claims. When you misprice your risk, that whipsaws on you. Once you realize that you're going to be on the hook for a lot more dollars than you have capital available, you're in for a long period of pain because the premiums that you got, they're already in the bank. You can't go get more Ooh, money that's from those brutal. customers. But you know that you're now facing years of streams in the future of more money that you're going to have to pay out than you have.
1: Yeah. It's like you just let someone walk into your casino without testing the game and turns out the game actually pays out the people who are playing at the casino more than it does to the house.
0: Totally. And you're not able to change your odds or the structure of your game for (laughs) a very long time. Or you can only change it for like new customers who come in.
1: Yeah, the the analogy breaks down somewhere in here, but yeah. It's bad, suffice to say.
0: (laughs) It's bad and it's not getting better anytime soon. So in 1976... The company announces a $190 million underwriting loss, the largest in its history, maybe even the largest in like auto insurance history, period, at that huh. point in time. They eliminate the dividend for the company because they need to conserve all the cash that they can to deal with this. And Wall Street figures out they don't have enough capital to cover future losses. So, this is like a crisis situation. Insurance regulators descend on the company, the stock drops from $61 a share to $2 a share. Like, Oof. can you imagine that? You know, what's that like 90% value destruction? You want to get to the exits before anybody else does if you're a shareholder. Totally. So Warren, fortunately, hasn't had all of the cigar butt Ben Graham, uh, ironically Ben Graham with Geico a philosophy beaten out of him. This piques his interest again in Geico. So he thinks he's found another you know, Amex-type situation where... Yeah,
1: like, where is Buffett to say that they're going to recover from this? Then he's not going to, you know, catch the knife on the way down.
0: Right. So he wants to find out, can this actually be turned around? But unlike the salad oil thing, where it was pretty easy to figure out, like, yeah, this is going to be good. Like, that's not going to be the case here. There is no way to avoid the years of pain ahead Mm. that Geico is going to go through. But there is. Something that Warren sees happening that the rest of the market doesn't quite understand yet, which is that Geico, you know, a good move, fires all of its management team and brings in a new CEO, a grizzled, literally grizzled veteran of the insurance industry who Warren had heard about named jack Byrne, and this guy is a legend
1: and and does warren have anything to do with installing him or how
0: no 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 no. this is is warren's just watching from afar he's waiting to see if there's something that like a glimmer of hope that maybe geico could make it out of this because the stock
1: is like super attractive i mean two bucks a share right so this is their current board like figuring out what to do here
0: yep yep partially at the uh shall we say request of the regulators so know, like, yeah, you you guys are really getting yourself uh up a creek here. So Jack had been one of the top execs at traveler's insurance before he resigned in like a huff when he was passed over for CEO.
1: Wow, that's gonna come full circle. Totally.
0: It's absolutely gonna come full circle.
1: Listeners, remember, remember traveler's insurance, just so David and I aren't like making inside jokes here. Like as we get to the end of the episode
0: so jack is like he's the man for the job he comes in and he engineers a plan to go out to all the other auto insurers in the industry and basically argue to them like hey if geico goes under yeah you'll lose a competitor but it's actually gonna be terrible for you because like if we go bankrupt all of these underwater policies the regulators are gonna make you guys absorb them
1: like You don't want that. Oh man. Was that true? Is that what would happen?
0: Well, I mean, you can't operate a motor vehicle in America without car insurance. Like, so if your insurer goes under, you need insurance. And especially if you've got claims underway, Mm. like, what's going to happen to those? Like, if the insurance company behind those claims goes away.
1: Interesting. So, this
0: is the argument that Byrne makes to the industry. And it mostly works. And the deal that he proposes is to get all these other auto insurers not to buy Geico, but to reinsure Geico for some of these future losses off of their own balance sheets.
1: And remind us what reinsurance is.
0: Well, so reinsurance is time an insurer is selling off some of their risk in their portfolio to another insurance organization. And there are large reinsurers like Kettle uh, that we've talked about on the show, What Are My Angel Investments? All they do is they buy risk off of other primary insurers' books. Hmm. But primary insurers can also buy risk off of each other's books.
1: This is like, just to keep bringing it back to Vegas for fun, if a sports book messes up and sets the line in the wrong place, and then they end up like 70 30 30 on, you know, are the Patriots going to win or the Buccaneers going to win? I can't remember if they ever played in the Super Bowl, but just throwing names out. They will go to another casino and bet the other side to basically mm, yep. make it so that they're head, sure yeah. they're not going to make as much money on a sort of expected value basis. But now at least they're not overexposed on one side versus the other. Exactly. Exactly.
0: In your example, I mean, Tom Brady's going to win either way. So like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the bet to make. But... <laughs> Whichever team currently has Tom Brady is yeah. the answer
0: to that game. There's probably a way to make that bet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We digress, though. We digress. So this plan, actually, Buffett is like, that's a good plan. That's like a creative plan. That, that, that could work. So he gets Kay. Uh, remember, Geico's in Washington, and Kay knows everybody in Washington. Oh. So he Buffett doesn't actually know Jack. He gets Kay to broker an introduction for them. They meet at Kay's house in Washington. Buffett grills burn for hours and he's like, oh yeah, this guy's going to do it. (laughs) So just like the first time that Buffett met Geico, when he goes, takes the train down, he meets Lorimer Davidson, and the very next day he liquidates 75% of his portfolio to (laughs) to load up on Geico. To impress Ben Graham. The next day after the dinner... With Burn at Kay's house, he buys four million dollars of Geico stock at two bucks a share. So he he loads up; he's all in.
1: How so much now, of the company is that?
0: I didn't actually disentangle that versus what he would buy in what's going to happen next. So it's some meaningful percentage, but after what happens next, Buffett's going to end up with a third of the company.
1: Right. So this is like high single digit, low double digit that he just bought of the company.
0: Yeah, probably in the double digits. So now, that goes back by Buffett. Byrne is the man for the job. Things are looking up, but they still need capital to operate. Like They're they're out of money. They're going to sell off some of the risk, but they've got claims that are happening now that they need to pay off. So they need to go raise money. So Buffett tells Byrne to go up to New York and do the rounds with the investment banks and line somebody up to do a secondary equity offering Mm. out there. None of the big established banks want to touch this situation except for one. there's one bank that is willing to take on enough risk and enough risk to their reputation of what could end <laughs> up being a broken offering here, which all the the you know white shoe banks are like eh, we, we don't do broken offerings
1: here. So I don't actually remember who this was. I'm gonna guess by the relationship that gets forged for future events that it's Solomon Brothers.
0: It is Solomon Brothers, (laughs) indeed. The Bank of Liars, Poker, Michael Lewis, fame, which we will definitely come back to in a sec. They're the only bank that is willing to underwrite what ultimately ends up being a $76 million convertible debt deal, convertible into equity that they underwrite. Buffett flies to New York and tells... And it's not just Solomon Brothers. It's one specific person at Solomon Brothers, a guy named John Goodfriend... Who is a rising star there? Remember that name, folks. So, Goodfriend and Solomon underwrite the $76 million deal. Buffett flies up to New York to sit down with Goodfriend and tell him, hey, look, I know this is going to be a tough deal to get through, even Solomon Brothers' famous sales distribution channels, even your famous prescriptionists out there. If things go sideways, Berkshire we're willing to underrate the deal and do all of it, but we're going to do it at a much lower price than what you go out with if the deal is broken. So Griffin's like, "Eh, all right, great. At least, well, I'll go trade on your name then at least and say, tell all all my clients like, hey, Warren Buffett already owns a large percentage of this company and he's willing to...
1: Okay. So what do you mean trade on his name? Like, What do you mean Buffett will do it all, but at a lower price? Like He would buy the whole offering? Like if they're trying to sell a whole swath of stock at a certain price, is this the convertible preferred that they're selling? Yeah,
0: this is the convertible... I think it's convertible debt, not convertible preferred. Okay, But yeah, essentially what, what Buffett says is he's like, look, I'm good for the $76 million, but I want you to go out there and try and get this deal done at like less dilution, essentially like a higher price I on that convert.
1: It's like when an insider uh in a venture round tells the company hey like i'm good for my pro rata in whatever round you raise go raise the round go get a price if you were to lead an inside round you know i'd lead it like if you wanted to do an inside round but it won't be at the price where you could go raise your external
0: your external round exactly that's exactly what's going on here so girlfriend's like all right i can work with that you go out, the Solomon Brothers sales and trading, famous aggressive sales and trading desk, they get the deal done. It ends up being oversubscribed. And Buffett does end up, even though it's oversubscribed and goes out at the price that they wanted, Warren's like, all right, all right I think this company's gonna make it. Uh, he ends up buying twenty-five percent of the deal, even at full price hmm. for Berkshire. The stock, even though they just issued new convertible into equity, you know, securities, the stock jumps to eight bucks a share because people realize Hey, this is this is good news.
1: This thing could make it out alive, and if it does, damn good business.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Geico has now got two of the three problems solved. It's got it's capitalized, it's got enough money to make it through. It's laid off a lot of the tail of of risk in their current book over the coming years with the reinsurance deals that they do. But it's still not pricing right. So the thing about auto insurance and most consumer insurance is you need licenses to operate in any state and part of the licensing process is you have like a license to sell insurance at a certain price you can't just like arbitrarily change your price on your customers that's the the regulators don't allow that Hmm. it's a super weird market it's not like uh you know we could change the price of the LP show right. tomorrow if we want. You're won't. only
1: allowed to make a certain amount of profit too. There's sort of a cap on the profitability of insurance businesses. Exactly.
0: So this is Burns' time to shine. This is amazing. This is my favorite moment. I think of this whole second episode. So he goes out to all the states individually and he explains the situation and be like, "Hey, we were mispricing. We got to raise prices on consumers." And some of the states are okay with it. Apparently, New York, right off the bat, is like, "Yeah, we get it. Okay, fine." But some of the states are playing hardball. And in particular, New Jersey is playing hardball. Huh. I, I mean, New Jersey, right? Like, uh, it's burn the himself. Florida, the north. Yeah. Burn himself is from New Jersey. So he's like, all right, you want to, you want to do some mafia tactics here? I'll do some mafia tactics. So I'm, I'm just going to read what happens next from the snowball because I, I can't do this any better than, than Alice Please. did here. So burn marched into the New Jersey commissioner's office with a copy of the company's license to operate in the state in his pocket and told Sheeran, the commissioner, that Geico must have a rate increase. This is now a quote from Byrne. He had a sour ass little wizened actuary at his side who'd been fired by some (laughs) insurance company and had a bone to pick. Sheeran said, my numbers didn't justify a rate increase. I did all the arm waving and stuff that I could. And Mr. Sheeran was intractable. So Byrne pulled the license out of his pocket. Threw it on Sheeran's desk, saying, I have no choice but to turn in the license, or something to that effect with more four letter words. He then drove off to the office with his tires screeching, sent out telegrams to 30,000 policyholders in New Jersey, canceling their insurance that day, and fired 2,000 New Jersey employees in a single afternoon before Sheeran could go to court and get an injunction to stop him. Byrne says, Whoa. it showed everybody, all audiences, I was serious about this. And then I was going to fight for the life of this company no matter what, including walking out of a state which wasn't done back then. Burns' impalement of New Jersey had exactly that effect. Everybody knew he was serious.
1: And so do they end up actually just vacating New Jersey and just didn't serve policies yeah. there?
0: They literally vacate New Jersey. They vacate a bunch of other states. And Burn is like by then he's like, look, this is war. Like we're either gonna, we gotta reprice. So either we're gonna burn the house down, you know, and and vacate these states, or we're gonna be allowed to reprice. So Geico by the end of this has shrunken down to only seven states. It's like the
1: original Travis Kalanick.
0: I know, I know, it's amazing. He uh has shrunken down to only seven states. Burn has completely swapped out everybody in the company famously you know, the a lot of the sort of middle and lower management in the in the company it was from the you know the old days undisciplined days apparently at one point the then existing HR director is giving a speech in front of the company and Burn gets so upset that he storms on stage and fires him on the spot, literally like gives him the hook, takes him on stage, points at somebody in the audience and says, you're the new HR director. <laughs>
1: Brings him oh up on God. stage.
0: Amazing.
1: Is Lorimer still there at this point in history?
0: Lorimer's is r- long retired at this point in time, but he's like hmm. cheering on from the sidelines <laughs> and he's advising Byrne and Buffett behind the scenes. Wow. Amazing. So they shrink Geico down to only the seven states and D.C. that let them change the rates. And they write the ship and they price the policies appropriately. The company gets profitable. It stops losing money. It starts growing again and then would go on to become what did Warren say in the annual meeting uh, this weekend? I think that they have like second what, 20...
1: largest insurance company.
0: Yeah. Progressive is slightly larger, but I think they each have about 25% of the U.S. market. Wow. Something like that. Incredible.
1: And he spent $47 million from 1976 to 1980 to buy... Is it about half the company?
0: So, yes. By the time the debt offering closes, and then when the share price jumps, I assume the debt converts at that point, Berkshire owns 33% of GEICO. But because he's Warren, and because this is now like one of his jewels, he runs the playbook that he's also helping K. Graham run at The Post... Geico starts buying back its own stock. So by the mid 90s, we're fast forwarding to, uh, we'll we'll get to this later in the next episode. By the mid 90s, Berkshire has 50% of the company without putting in another dollar. And then in 1995, Berkshire buys the rest of Geico that it doesn't own for $2.3 billion. (laughs) So they get half the company for 47 million and half the company for 2.3 billion. Either way, they get a hell of a deal because estimates are that Geico worth probably about fifty billion dollars today, maybe more. Wow! So that's twenty-five billion of value, assuming that's fifty on $45 billion. And $25 billion of value on
1: two point three billion. Either way, pretty good. Either way, pretty good. Warren's like, "Look at me now, feds, <laughs> listeners." Uh, even though this is going to be in the final. Part of the trilogy, we do have to tell you that the uh, in 1996, the 2.3 billion that was used to purchase the second half of Geico. You might be saying to yourself, "Why did it take so long? If you really liked this business forever." Well, Berkshire had a lot of cash tied up in other stuff for a while, and a thing that happened pretty much immediately before this 2.3 billion dollar transaction for half of Geico was that Warren had a big investment in Capital Cities. And Disney came in and bought ABC Capital Cities, which then, of course, in that outright sale, uh, all the proceeds went to good old Berkshire, and that was a little bit more capital than $2.3 billion, but about the same amount that suddenly they had to play with to go put to work somewhere else, and Geico was where they decided to go put it to work.
0: What better jewel to put that capital into than Geico? amazing
1: so you know it's funny we
0: said on or i said on the first episode something that i was totally convinced was right at the time and now maybe not where i said that god if if warren had just held on to geico and not sold imagine what his returns could have been you know who knows what would have happened otherwise but you know geico almost died right like if he had held on would he have had this ride anyway and ended up here he got to buy back in
1: at two bucks a share totally yeah, that's a good point. He did get it at an extremely low basis, even though he skipped a few decades of compounding and growing in there. It is also worth pointing out that despite the fact that it is a Buffett mantra to hold businesses forever, hold hold great businesses that you believe in forever, he can dump a stock just as fast as the next guy. I mean, the way that he dumped all the airline stocks at probably the low point of the COVID stock crash it was really interesting hearing him on stage last week where he's, he was totally unapologetic for that, thought it was totally the yeah. right move. And you could imagine that he easily could have been convinced that that was the right thing to do in the Geico situation too.
0: Totally. And all that matters is uh, the long run. <laughs> Although as uh, Charlie Munger would say, who is it? I think it's Charlie quoting John Maynard Keynes that in the long run, we're all dead. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But in the long run, Geico becomes you know one of the major jewels if if not the the most important piece of berkshire especially given all the float that they generate i guess that is that is the big thing that berkshire and warren miss over that 20 year period where he's not invested in geico is using the float
1: yep there is a playbook theme i want to pull forward here which is and it's actually two themes and it's important to know how they're different The first one is identifying things that have far less risk than the market perceives them to have. Mm -hmm. And that's things like American Express. That's things like him realizing that brands are more powerful than value investors give them credit for, or the magical thing of a monopoly franchise newspaper. But then there's this second category of identifying things that, should you act, will have far less risk than the market perceives them to have. And even more importantly, if you uniquely have the capability to act, then you actually can be value creative. Like the thing that he did with Geico in making sure that that financing got done. There's not a lot of people out there whose name can be traded on to get an offering done like that. And Buffett's willingness to both strategize and then put his name on the line. And of course, his name wasn't really on the line because otherwise he just would have gotten the screaming deal. But did a thing that he was uniquely suited to do and able to do meant that in a self-fulfilling prophecy way, the investment was way less risky merely because he was involved.
0: Yep. Oh boy. Is that ever, <laughs> is that ever the case? And and does Warren ever know it?
1: David, I figured I'd set you for that next story we got coming. Well,
0: you, you really are. are you tossed that ball in the air and I just, I cannot wait to <laughs> slam it. But before we get to Warren getting punch drunk on his own reputation and ability to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to save businesses, so all the the Geico situation wraps up kind of around 1980, and you know it's off to the races. The rest of the beginning of the 80s is just more goodness for Warren and Charlie and Berkshire. So finally, when Paul Volcker becomes chairman of the Fed. First at the end of the Carter administration, and then under the Reagan administration, he enacts the, you know, correct fiscal and monetary policy to reverse the terrible inflation that had been happening. And the 80s just become, you know, we're both children of the 80s, like an immense period of prosperity, the 80s and 90s for America. So the 80s of the go-go years, you know, this is Wall Street movie. This is excess. This is everything. And it's a good time for Berkshire in in Omaha, too. So we won't go into all the details, but they buy the Nebraska Furniture Mart from Mrs. B. (laughs) Incredible story. She then gets upset with the way her children, who are like in their 80s at this point, or 70s, are running the business, she leaves, starts a competitor across the street at age 95, <laughs> when Berkshire has to buy it back for $5 bucks and sign a non-compete with her at age 95. Amazing.
1: There's the Buffalo Evening News in here, sort of the early 80s, which is when Buffett really... Is that the early 80s?
0: Yep. Early 80s. Yep.
1: He gets it into a good old-fashioned newspaper war... Uh, he's trying to be the franchise newspaper in the city, ends up sinking tons of capital in, gets into, a, not a fight, but a few disagreements and has some words with with Charlie about the right things to do. But, you know, Buffett's a committed guy. There's a bunch of stuff that happens in here that we could do 10 episodes and wouldn't have time for it all.
0: Totally. He, uh, he goes to war with the efficient market hypothesis theorists, which is amazing. And just like at Columbia's 50th anniversary event of... The the Publishing of Security Analysis, he gives this talk where he just like, he calls it the super investors of Graham and Doddville. It gives this long talk, eviscerating the efficient market hypothesis, folks, economists, which basically their hypothesis is that all markets are efficient and that changes in price are simply volatility and around the efficient price and that volatility equals risk. And so that is... Market beta, and that's that's all there is. Like, when if you're investing, there is no such thing as investing acumen. You're just taking volatility risk in the market. Charlie has a one-word retort to that, which is bullshit. <laughs> Warren goes through and, and eloquently explains why that's wrong.
1: Well, and and they just have a lifetime of investment results to prove it. Like they actually can generate alpha. How well? Like otherwise, you have to. Believe that Buffett has uh, has flipped a coin and it's come up heads, you know, a hundred thousand times in a row. Like it, you're into these crazy probabilistic scenarios where, you know, at, at some point it's too many standard deviations away from the mean for you to believe that it's possible.
0: Yeah, and the reason this is important for what's about to come is so like all this is theory, right? This is like economic theory, but it has a very very important real world consequence in the '80s, which is that people who you know use to their advantage the academic thinking behind the efficient market hypothesis that risk equals volatility they realize that well wait if risk equals volatility and you can't get alpha the way you can get more returns if you take something that has a certain degree of volatility and then you lever the crap out of it with debt you magnify that volatility and then you can magnify your returns if you arbitrage that. And so this is when, you know, the 80s are the debt-fueled decade, you know. Mortgage-backed securities get introduced. All the junk bonds and Michael Milken and DLJ and corporate raiders and corporate takeovers are all happening.
1: Oh, massive leverage buyouts. You get barbarians at the gate.
0: Yep. RJR and Hibisco, everything. everything. Yep. And Buffett and Charlie are sitting and looking at this and they're like, volatility being risk is nonsensical. Risk is risk that you go out of business (laughs) and introducing debt into the equation. Far from not changing your risk, it massively increases your risk because what causes you to get game over? It's when you go bankrupt and you can't pay off your debt. (laughs) So while they're out there espousing this philosophy in the meantime, well, they do do the Capital Cities deal finally with Tom and Dan.
1: So Buffett stepped off the board of the Post to be able to do the Cap Cities investment? The Cap
0: Cities deal. So he invests $517 million in Cap Cities to help Ooh. them buy ABC. $517 million, Like, I mean, that's a, a big chunk of money, but he can do this at Berkshire now. Like, They're enormous. They're a multi-billion dollar company. He's a billionaire himself already at this point.
1: And so, if these guys are anti-leverage and they're trying not to, you know, do the LBO thing where you lever up and then buy something and then have to make debt payments forever um, out of the profits of the thing that you just bought, how does the Cap Cities transaction work then, where Cap Cities is able to be the minnow that swallows the whale?
0: Well, a big part of it is that five hundred seventeen million in equity from Berkshire coming in to the deal.
1: I see. So they they basically have a very large post money valuation effectively because they're issuing a whole bunch of new primary shares out of cap cities to be able to have enough money on the balance sheet to buy abc. So
0: I don't know I don't have notes on exactly what the structure of the deal was. I believe it was some cap city stock plus the 500 million in equity from I think it was convertible equity from um Berkshire. And then they probably did add on some debt as part of it. But, you know, like got like a reasonable amount of debt, like, right, especially with a predictable cash flow business. You know that that's reasonable where Warren and Charlie get themselves into not just like trouble on the order of the the trouble with the feds earlier in the episodes or actually the multiple troubles with the feds earlier in the episodes, but real honest to God, like, frankly, the worst moments of their lives trouble is when they think that their reputation and their ability to save companies and their ability to be this capital partner to companies is so great that they can come in and save wall street itself
1: or wall street from itself or
0: wall street from itself with solomon brothers oh boy <laughs> here we go so remember we told you to remember john Goodfriend and solomon brothers who had helped Geico do the convert deal that Warren backstopped. You know, Warren thinks good friend walks on water at this point. You know, they're the only bank that was willing to do this. You know, Warren famously, and, and Charlie, they famously hate Wall Street. They hate banks. But like, you know, okay, you did be a solid.
1: <laughs> and, and we know these guys. So we feel for them a little bit. They don't we they don't seem them. like the enemy. They're kind of our, you know, we know them.
0: Yep. So we're now in the late 80s. Good friend has become the CEO of Solomon Brothers. They've gone through a series of mergers and acquisitions. The firm is much bigger than it was before. It's now publicly traded. And Solomon already was the debt king. But in this environment of the debt fueled, everything we were just saying about the 80s, Solomon is like the king they sold the first mortgage-backed security an inglorious honor if there ever was one they go deep into junk bonds derivatives all kinds of hairy stuff it gets so extreme at solomon that in 1980 i think it was 86 a young princeton graduate shows and aspiring writer shows up at the firm as a new hire michael lewis on the Bond sales and trading desk, and ends up writing a book about his experiences, intended to be as a cautionary tale of the wretched <laughs> excesses of Wall Street, has the exact opposite effect. Called Liars Poker,
1: it's inspirational beacon for a generation of uh, of Wall Streeters to come.
0: Look, I remember reading the book when I was graduating from Princeton and about to go work on Wall Street myself, and it's it's just it's like the Social Network. Twenty years later, it's like mm. you know this was meant to be most at best a you know, show all sides of a complicated situation, and at worst a cautionary tale. And instead, like a whole generation of young people just look at it and they say, like, I want me some of that.
1: (laughs) Sounds fun. You get rich? Great. (laughs) I'll
0: just read one quote from the book where Lewis writes about the famous forty first floor home of the bond traders at Solomon. He says Because the 41st floor was the chosen home of the firm's most ambitious people, and because there were no rules governing the pursuit of profit and glory, the men who worked there, including the more bloodthirsty, had a hunted look about them. The place was governed by the simple understanding that the unbridled pursuit of perceived self-interest was healthy, eat or be eaten, The men of 41 worked with one eye cast over their shoulders to see whether someone was trying to do them in, for there was no telling what manner of man had leveled himself to the rung below you and was now hungry for your job. The limit of acceptable contact within Solomon Brothers was wide indeed. Here was capitalism at its most raw and its most self-destructive.
1: I love Michael Lewis. I I could make every single one of his books a carve out at some point.
0: So great. So despite this immense success in the bond market, Solomon and Goodfriend have gotten themselves in kind of a pickle here because it's working too well. All these traders, all these wolves of Wall Street, they are generating so much money, but they're demanding that they're going to get paid all the money. <laughs> so there's all of it gets paid out in bonuses to all the traders who are constantly demanding more and threatening to leave for other firms that the corporation itself, the you know recently public, uh, now public company, Solomon Brothers, the profits are actually
1: declining. <laughs> I was seeing some stat that even in a year, I think it was in a year where they underperformed the S&P 500, there were still over 100 people at the firm that were paid out over a million dollars in their bonus. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah. One year where that happened, famously, one guy, just individual trader, made a $23 million bonus in one year in like 1987 or something
1: right which is i don't know two two x two and a half x uh, by inflation today
0: whatever it is that's a damn lot of money
1: for a rent seeker you totally. know like the, the, where's the value creation there
0: oh, oh there is only value destruction happening here <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing being created
1: or certainly value capture
0: uh absolutely so because solomon itself is suffering they start attracting the attention of corporate raiders, and in particular, Ron Perlman, Revlon, right? Yeah, Revlon. Yeah, he buys out Solomon's existing largest shareholder, and he starts agitating like he's gonna, he's gonna take over Solomon Brothers. Which good friend of nobody at the firm, because they just want to keep paying themselves the bonuses. They of course don't want this. So you've got basically the one hundred percent most anti Buffett and Munger, at least what they say, situation possible here a bunch of people at the firm management quote unquote there's no management going on but like (laughs) employees just simply enriching themselves at the cost of shareholders while ratcheting up risk in the economy and creating no value uh what could be better good friend calls buffett he's worried about he doesn't want to get thrown out by perlman and he says he needs to cash in the favor from the geico deal and Warren, you know, Berkshire has such a reputation of being the white knight and saving companies at this point that,
1: and being management friendly,
0: and being management friendly, exactly. It's all going to come back to bite them. That good friend says, "Like, hey, if I can get Warren to join the board, I'm going to get Pearlman off off my rear end." So Warren and Charlie agree to do it, and and they both
1: take board seats. Right? They get two seats.
0: They both take board seats. So here's how it goes down. It's Rosh Hashanah weekend in September. 1987 and Perlman is like a Orthodox Jew. So he's, he's out of commission. You know, he's not, he's not doing anything over the weekend. And of course, good friend knows this. And so he times everything. So he gets the deal done in secret with Buffett and Berkshire over that weekend. Berkshire buys $700 million of convertible preferred stock in Solomon. So more than the money than they put into cap cities, with a 15, 15% interest rate coupon on attached to that wow. convertible preferred stock.
1: So it's like the company's in dire straits and the CEO really doesn't want or, or really does want to incentivize these particular shareholders to become shareholders. Well, and that's what's so
0: disgusting about this situation is like, the revenue line essentially of the firm has never been better. Like these traders, you can <laughs> say what you will about what they're doing, but they are raking in money for, at the top line, but then they're paying it all off to themselves in bonuses. So the firm is suffering. Capital's coming in. They do this really tough terms deal simply to save, you know, again, quote unquote, management's own skin. <laughs> it, it's It's really something that goes on here and I mean it's crazy that Warren and Charlie and Berkshire do this even you know loyalty is super important to them and good friend and Solomon having saved Gecko anyway they do it both of them join the board and there's this famous scene where they fly to New York the two of them over this weekend I mean this must be like on the Friday and they uh they go to the Solomon building to sign the papers And good friend takes him on a tour and they go to the balcony overlooking floor 41. It's like a callback to child Warren overlooking the balcony of the stock exchange and being like, wow, there's so much money here. I want me some of that. And they're looking down on what's essentially like a seething gladiator pit below. And Charlie looks at Warren and he says, so you really want to invest in this, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And Warren, uh, supposedly just is kind of like silent for a minute. You can just see him being like, what am I getting myself into? And he finally says, mm-hmm. <laughs> in like a slow, huh. and then he goes and signs the papers.
1: And, you know, credit to Charlie for asking the question, but Charlie follows him into the pit too. And, and oh, 100%. And, and joins the board as well.
0: Uh, totally. And um, probably regretted it every day after. So they do the deal. This is September Of 1987. October 19th of 1987 is Black Monday when the Dow falls 22.6%. Oh my God. And essentially a flash crash. I had this confused in my mind. I thought Black Monday in 87 was the long term capital management thing. No, that happened much later. This was actually a flash crash. So, like, nobody really knows why this happened. Of course, Mm. the market was overheated. Of course, there was way too much leverage in the system. But things recover pretty quickly. That's not what triggers a meltdown. So Solomon, of course, gets crushed like the rest of Wall Street. They lose $75 million in in trading losses on that day. The stock gets crushed, but they're not in any better or worse shape than any other investment bank. But the stock is way down. So Buffett and Munger show up to their first board meeting after this happens, which is like the next month, maybe in November. And um, good friend in management puts a deal on the table to reprice all employees stock options because the stock is down and mm. Buffett and Munger flipped. They're like, wait a minute, you guys lost a ton of money for the firm. Like we, as you know, as shareholders in the firm, like our stock that we just invested, our 700 million is now worth less. And you guys are saying you want to take advantage of this lower stock price to reprice all of your options that you're then just going to trade out of immediately as soon as they vest and liquidate for
1: cash. <laughs> right. It's it's like, it, you know, no one here wants to become bigger owners of this thing. You all just want a quick arbitrage opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. But they acquiesce. You know, they don't really want to fight with
0: management. And they also know that if they get into kind of a public fight with, if this becomes public, that they're fighting with good friend and the board. Stock price drops even the stock further. Stock price is going to drop even further. And they've got $700 million at stake here. And so they don't really want to do that. So, I mean, we're already pretty far down the slippery slope here. This is when the real slide starts. So not only do the options get repriced, but then in secret behind the board's back, good friend reaches a deal with the head of the best performing trading desk on the floor, the so-called magical arb desk, the bond arbitrage desk run by John Merriweather who runs the domestic fixed income arbitrage group to directly pay them 15% of all the trading profit they make as bonuses. So like no longer even just to like, Hey, management will decide your bonus at the end of the year. It'll be based on the performance of the firm. It's now like your prop shop, like 15% Mm -hmm. of all of your profits you're going to take home with none of your own capital at risk and on the hook for none of the downside when you have losses
1: wow yeah, I'll, I'll incentivize some bad behavior
0: yeah so things limp along for the next couple of years warren and charlie aren't thrilled about everything that's going on but so then the shoe drops in august of 1991 buffett is on vacation in reno nevada and he gets a call from not from good friend from solomon's president tom strauss and its general counsel, Don Furstein, who behind the scenes at Solomon, Don is referred to as quote, the Prince of Darkness <laughs> for all oh of the dirty work.
1: That Things he, I never he, want to be called. Yeah.
0: That he, all of the sticky situations that he gets Solomon out of and all the dirty work he does. This is amazing. You can't make this stuff up. So Warren's on vacation. He gets a call. This is not a call you want to get. And, uh, uh, so Warren's suspicious, you know, they get on the phone and, and they're like, well, our firm's outside counsel, Solomon's outside counsel, has figured out that the head of our government bond trading desk, Paul Moser, who reports to Meriwether, he's apparently been violating some of the Treasury Department's rules when bidding on government bond auctions. The way the Fed controls the money supply, the way that interest rates are set, they bid out bonds, government debt, and then all the big investment banks get to place bids in terms of interest rate, and then the government selects which banks buy the debt.
1: And there's only a few, what is it, 40 banks or something that are even allowed to be involved in these auctions. that are allowed to have the privilege of buying debt from the US government.
0: Yeah, this is the way the money supply gets into the economy. To be one of these banks means that you are controlling, you have a direct relationship with the federal government, and the treasury controlling the economy. So Moser's been violating the rules. They don't say exactly how or why, and that they've suspended him, and Solomon is gonna, you know, notify the regulators about this. And Warren's like, oh, the Prince of Darkness is calling me for this. Like, that doesn't seem that bad. Like, you violate some rules, okay. But like, while this is really important and prestigious, this is like kind of a sleepy part of the firm. You wouldn't think that. The government bond desk is something that could like blow up the firm you know you'd be more worried about the arb desk
1: per se hmm.
0: so he's like all right well you know call charlie he's the lawyer between us you know he'll he'll know what to just, do just
1: just some rules like how, how bad could it really be i'm sure it's just some regulatory tape some regulatory stuff
0: so they're like
1: oh yes we've we've already
0: talked to charlie he's totally cool with it like no worries so i like okay great i'm gonna go back to vacation Well, turns out Charlie wasn't totally cool with it. And turns out that maybe Moser did a little bit more than just violate the Treasury's bidding rules. What he actually did was he submitted fake bids on behalf of clients for the Treasury auctions. Both fake bids for real clients and fake bids for fake clients. So on behalf of people who weren't even customers of Solomon Brothers. And his goal in doing this was to essentially corner the market in this auction, win all of the auction for these treasury bonds and put the squeeze on all the other participants who needed the bonds to sell to their resell to their clients so that he could then sell it at a massive profit in the market, which he
1: did and of course while it's illegal to bid on behalf of your clients who are not placing orders and that it's even more illegal to bid on behalf of imaginary clients, it's also illegal to try and quarter the market on a given auction. There are rules in place that say things like you can't try and bid for more than 35% of any given auction because we need it to be able to be spread around because we don't want this big second market for people, you know, paying a big premium because someone managed to go get 90% of the allocation.
0: Totally. And the reason they don't want this to have happen is what actually happens as a result of Moser's actions, like three or four small financial firms that couldn't absorb this price volatility go bankrupt. Uh, so this is like this is real what the dude did. And I think he did this like four or five times. And the net of all of it was Solomon made an incremental $4 million in profit. (laughs) All this for $4 million. So it turns out he did it multiple times. It turns out that Meriwether, who was his boss in the chain of command, and Goodfriend knew about this four months ago. And they knew about it because the SEC started investigating and got in touch with them. And when that happened... The general counsel, the Prince of Darkness, told Goodfriend that what was happening here was criminal, but that technically, they didn't have any technical obligation to report it to anyone.
1: The CEO is sending letters to the general counsel without notifying the board. Like, hey, I got this letter from the SEC. They're investigating us. But just our GC needs to know about it. Yep. Not
0: notifying the board, not notifying the shareholders or the public, and equally, if not worse, not notifying the other regulators that this is going on. So the SEC is investigating, but they haven't found any. They just found some irregularities. Internally, Solomon found, oh, no, this is criminal. Like, what's going on here? So they don't tell anybody. And not only that, they don't fire Moser. They leave him in place running the government bond desk and... There's no audits or controls on what he's doing. So basically, they're like, don't do that again. Wink, wink, wink. Wow. And then they turn around and look the other way. So at this point in time, the SEC has like figured out, like, yeah, these aren't just irregularities. They figured out what's going on. Word starts to get out. On Monday after this, August 12th, the Wall Street Journal runs a big piece about how bad this could be and how little is known solomon's counterparties their lenders and their trading partners start like getting cold feet about dealing with solomon and all the markets that they operate in and solomon it turns out they're the second biggest bank on wall street at this point in time they have a 150, 150 billion of capital like in the markets wow but they only have four billion dollars of equity all the rest of it is like Short term paper and debt and leverage and like everything that has been building up in the 80s. So they're like, what's that, 60 times levered on their oh my capital. <laughs> and all of a sudden their counterparties start getting cold feet about trading their paper. And 50 billion, five zero billion of the 150 billion rolls over every single day.
1: That's really short term paper.
0: So if there's a problem, it's going to be instantaneous and the firm is dead. So also on that same day, on that Monday, this is probably the worst thing that happens. So the Federal Reserve sends a letter to Goodfriend and Solomon saying, I think only Goodfriend and and, uh, the general counsel see this, saying that it is, quote, deeply troubled by both the firm's actions and lack of actions. And it is questioning whether it can continue to have a business relationship with Solomon Brothers. This is the Federal Reserve unless the firm oh my God. responds to this letter and significantly changes its business practices within the next 10 days. Now, if the Fed ends its business relationship with Solomon, game over, like it's dead. All the counterparties are going to stop trading with Solomon. Wow. Like it's, it's literally game over instantaneously. <laughs> Good friend and the GC just sit on the letter. They don't tell the board. They don't tell anyone else. They don't tell the Cheryl. Nobody knows Whoa. about the letter except the two of them. The feds assume that the board knows about the letter, that like Solomon is doing something, but good friend and, and the GC cover it up. Buffett by this point in time, he gets in touch with Charlie, and Charlie's like, uh, yeah, you should be concerned about this. So the board convenes, they issue a press release saying that you know they're looking into this and figuring out what happened. The firm's stock drops 30% that day. The Fed, meanwhile, is like, you guys aren't responding to our letter. Like, uh they're just getting angrier and angrier every day that goes by. On Friday of that week, the New York Times runs a headline, Wall Street sees a serious threat to Solomon Brothers. And the Fed finally has had enough. The lead investigator running the case at the Federal Reserve calls a good friend and says, you need to resign like today. And you need to install new management or else, <laughs> you know, essentially. Huh. When Goodfriend gets that call, he calls Buffett, who's still in Omaha. And he essentially just tosses him the keys to the firm. And he's like, I'm going to resign. <sighs> Somebody has to step in and um, run the place and deal with this. And it's probably got to be you. So good luck with that.
1: Wow.
0: Not quite in that language, but uh, but that's essentially how it goes down. Pretty intense stuff. Warren and Charlie are legitimately frightened at this point
1: and the argument there is like hey i have to be out uh we don't have any ideas for who's next yep
0: there's no plan there's no manager whoever
1: steps in has to have the reputation to be able to save this firm and like nobody wants their investment to go to zero so i pick you as the person who seems like you might be able to save this thing
0: well at this point the fiduciarily responsible people are the board and who are the most prominent people on the board? Hmm. Warren and Charlie, and Warren specifically. So, like, you know, good friends already out as CEO. So there's nobody left except Warren to come in Wild. and deal with this. So, Warren immediately gets on a plane to New York and he goes and meets with the Federal Reserve and tries to like understand and sweet talk them. This is amazing to me. The Fed, I think, assumes that Warren knows about their letter, but he doesn't, and that wires still get <laughs> crossed in this meeting. So Warren doesn't understand what the worst-case scenario really is. And cryptically, at the end of the meeting, Buffett's trying to you know, sweet-talk them and buy more time. The Fed tells Warren that to, quote, prepare for all eventualities, <laughs> i.e., that they're going to yank the right to you know participate in the treasury auctions, and Solomon's going to go down the tubes. So now... It's Friday night into Saturday morning and Warren has to make a choice. He can walk away from Solomon, say I'm resigning and, and $700 million goes up in flames, but he can walk away. Or the other option is he can take the reins of the company and try and steer this thing through as he's thinking about it and talking with Charlie. He realized he, he actually doesn't have a choice because if he walks away, his reputation is toast. If he walks away, a hundred percent, his reputation is toast, and like he loses seven hundred million, like that'll be fine. But like, what company is going to do a deal with Berkshire Hathaway ever again after this? Right. And if he stays, you know, probably there's a good chance he's not going to be able to navigate through this. In which case, his reputation is also toast.
1: Which th- this brings up that George Bernard Shaw quote that I think it's Charlie who likes to quote it never wrestle with a pig. You just get dirty, but the pig enjoys it. Exactly. And you can imagine that moment where they're standing out, looking over the trading floor, knowing that they're about to wrestle with a pig, and then this is the eventuality of what happened with that.
0: Yep. And this is where, as he's realizing this, so Alice writes in The Snowball, quote, at some point during that long, horrible Friday, he recognized with a sickening jolt that investing in Solomon a business with problems over which he had essentially no control had put it all at risk. And by all she means everything, not Mm. just the 700 million in Solomon, like everything that Warren and Charlie together have built, you know, they're both on the board. So he decides he has to take the job. He decides he's going to become interim chairman of the company and he installs the head of the investment banking division a guy named Derek Mon as the CEO. That's just kind of like a. I mean, the investment banking that was the one thing that Solomon was not good at was the investment banking advisory <laughs> at business. So he he gets installed simply because he's just far away from all the toxicity. <laughs> hmm. And uh, then on Sunday, the board Warren and the and Charlie and the whole board is at the office in New York. They're trying to figure out what to do when a letter arrives from both the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. They haven't heard any response to their deadline of things have got to happen. And thus far, nothing has been announced from Solomon. So they say they've had enough. It's the end, like no more negotiating. They're pulling the plug that afternoon. And by the time the market opens in Tokyo, which is like, I think, late afternoon New York time, Uh, this is Sunday afternoon, so Monday morning Tokyo time. It's going to be announced that the Fed has revoked Solomon's licenses and it's over. So Warren directs the board and the lawyers to start preparing a bankruptcy filing. And in the meantime, he desperately starts trying to call anybody he knows in the government using all of his Washington connections (laughs) to like try and stay the execution here. And he finally reaches the Treasury Secretary, Nick Brady. Which is the Treasury and the Fed jointly made this decision, and Warren literally like breaks down on the phone, crying and like begs him, uh, says this is the most important day of my entire life, begs him to stay the execution and just give them like a little more time and figure things out. And so Brady is like moved by this. Uh, If I literally Warren Buffett, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if there's anybody in the world who could get the government to change its mind. And he says, "Like, okay, let me go talk to, let me go talk to Greenspan, the head of the Fed, and figure oh out God. what we're gonna do." So hours go by; it's all in limbo, <laughs> and they're just sitting in in the Solomon office, drafting up a bankruptcy filing. And then a call comes in from the assistant treasury secretary. Do you know who that was at the time? Call comes in for Buffett. No. One Jerome Powell.
1: Oh my God!
0: <laughs> then Assistant Secretary of incredible. the Treasury, incredible. And uh, he says, "Look, well, like th- this is bad. We're not going to allow Solomon to bid itself in Treasury auctions anymore. So we are going to, like, we need our pound of flesh. We will, however, because of you, <laughs> Warren." Because you're stepping in and you're committing to making changes, we will allow Solomon to continue to place bids on behalf of its clients. And he says, will that work? (laughs) And Warren is like, that'll do. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. So he literally gets the government to reverse their decision.
1: (laughs) Unbelievable. That's insane.
0: So now they have to deal with the aftermath.
1: Also, it's incredible that Goodfriend never showed the letter because... I assume he was a shareholder too and of course it's going to come out that there was a letter sent at some point so it's not like he's saving himself any like legal liability by not disclosing it.
0: Well, I think what happened, I don't know how far in advance he had gamed this out. What ends up happening, I'll tell the story in a minute of how this all wraps up, but as this is going down like concurrently that weekend, good friend and his lawyer they end up cuz Warren still he doesn't know the extent of good friend's you know deception here and cover hmm. up and he doesn't know about the letter he doesn't find out about the letter until later and so they go out to dinner and a uh, good friend and his lawyer a uh, personal lawyer try and get warren and charlie to sign a severance package for him leaving the company uh, they want a 35 million dollar payout <laughs> Uh, your reaction is priceless there
1: that's wild (laughs) isn't that
0: wild so they're trying to get the money (laughs) as always and um fortunately you know they're dealing with charlie munger here (laughs) so charlie basically stonewalls them he this is amazing i don't have the quote written down here but this would later get arbitrated and charlie would testify in the arbitration under oath that charlie's natural way of you know, being with other people is he turns his brain off when he's not interested in things and <laughs> he wasn't interested in what they had to say, and so he was just muttering and not saying anything and <laughs> it's uh amazing, amazing. In the negotiation. Yeah, in the negotiation. So they don't agree to anything, they don't sign anything, and and ends up after years of fighting this in arbitration, uh, gets zero dollars, as he should. Mm. Anyway, so they get the save, the stay of execution from the government and then they have to deal with the aftermath so warren has no interest or ability in actually running day-to-day solomon brothers but what he can do is he can deal with the government and the public so he instructs mon the new ceo to clean up the firm inside you handle everything inside the building and his instructions are get it right get it fast get it out (laughs) in terms of dealing with all the corruption in Mm. solomon and basically the first thing that happens that week is he gets Warren gets summoned before Congress to go testify in front of Congress. And this is brilliant. So they bring in MTO, Munger, Tolson and Olson, of course, to represent him and all this. And, mm-hmm. and Roy Olson comes in and Roy suggests this brilliant step that goes a long way, I think, towards saving Warren and Solomon. He suggests that they proactively go to the government and say, we will waive our attorney-client privilege. So everything, which is, this is like extraordinary. This never happens. So they're going to the government and they're saying, all of our communications and anything that MTO finds at Solomon, we will share with you.
1: (laughs) Wow. And it makes sense to do that because they're the new guard. So it doesn't, there's no way it can reflect poorly on Warren, Charlie, MTO it's only going to be negative for all the people that Warren wants to fire anyway.
0: Exactly. So Alice writes in in the snowball about how perfect this was. The more evidence that MTO found on employees that were guilty, the more proof it would show the government that Solomon was cooperating and that Buffett was cleaning (laughs) everything up. And the employees, meanwhile, must cooperate or be fired since none of anything that they would say would be protected by attorney client privilege with MTO. So the employee's options were get fired or answer MTO's questions, and anything you say to MTO is going directly to the government.
1: Yeah, so Warren's not there to protect anyone; he's there to. uh, uh, This is a win-win for him. Exactly,
0: exactly. This has Charlie's fingerprints all over it. Ha! So Warren goes in front of Congress, probably one of the most famous statements that Buffett's ever made, and you know certainly corporate history, where he's being grilled by senators. About what he's going to do at Solomon and how he's going to turn it around. And he says, uh, the way that Solomon's going to operate going forward is lose money for the firm and I will be understanding, lose a shred of reputation for the firm and I will be ruthless. Hmm. Fascinating. And he kind of puts on a show and he wows Congress. And Solomon ends up getting out of this thing with they settle in the next few months with the government for a $190 $190 million fine plus a $100 million restitution fund, which I assume is maybe to go to the other financial institutions that were hurt by the cornering of the market in huh. the treasury auction. I mean,
1: restitution. It's got to be it.
0: Yeah. Certainly, that's a lot of money, but like, this is amazing. He pulls this out. The firm wow. survives. And so, obviously, Solomon is you know damaged, but over the next few years... They recover and they end up a few years and wh- later. When
1: does Warren? When's he able to like actually step out of day to day? As soon as possible.
0: Basically, as soon as the settlement hits, he's
1: like, yeah, "And
0: I'm out as chairman." <laughs> he stays on the board though. He keeps the investment in, and uh, but he's no longer day to day. So this happens in '92. Six years later, in '98, Solomon gets acquired by Citigroup, the former Travelers Insurance. As Incredible. you put a pin in for nine billion dollars, which means that Berkshire gets a return of one point seven billion dollars on their seven hundred million dollar investment, <laughs> plus the fifteen percent coupon that they had been oh, cash coupon right. that they've been getting. So <laughs> unbelievably, wow. I mean, it, it literally takes Warren and Berkshire to the brink,
1: but this ends up being a really good investment for them. Wow. It makes so much sense why he, Buffett then had the the quote, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. I, I bet he sort of imagines looking out on the trading floor when re- reflecting on how he might do things differently.
0: Totally.
1: I do wonder if he looks back on this and thinks, was it worth it for that investment return? Probably not.
0: 100% not. Yeah. <laughs> 100% not. You know, the irony is like, yeah, 100% not. But this only kind of adds to the myth of Warren and Berkshire. Well, right. Now
1: he's the guy, who, he can he can save even the cesspool of Solomon brothers. You know, what can't he do?
0: What can't he do? Uh, so this is where we're going to leave part two. But there's one coda before we do. Ben, you may know, you probably know. But listeners, I will ask, do you know what other organization after this whole debacle that John Merriweather, the head of fixed income trading at Solomon Brothers, would go on to found two years later in
1: 1994. David, is it uh, something that had a crisis where you mentioned it earlier in this episode? Yes, it would be. My God, this is just crazy. Is he part of the group that was the former Solomon Brothers people that went to do long-term capital management.
0: Not only was he part of that group, he was the leader of that group. Literally John Merriweather, founder and CEO of long-term capital management.
1: Wow. And he was the guy between good friend who was the CEO, and the guy directly underneath him was the guy doing the auction violations. Wow. Yep.
0: How crazy is that?
1: Did any of these guys ever go to jail?
0: The only guy who went to jail was Paul Moser, the guy who did the auction violations and he went to jail for four months. (laughs) Isn't that unreal? Wow. Like literally, I mean, the thing that we didn't talk about in this history, you know, certainly the government was influenced by Warren's reputation and his pleading, but they were also scared too. Like nobody knew what would happen if you just, took the Mm. second largest investment bank in the world out back and shot it like it for sure would have created a a financial meltdown and then of course you know 16 years later we got to that was this was the dress rehearsal for what we got to see actually happen in 2008
1: wow which of course berkshire also uh was an active participant in yeah mostly mostly in buying the dip (laughs) yeah but uh, wow, we'll, we'll save that story. It's funny, we've got for part three, we'll have the whole tech bubble, we'll have 2008, we'll have the tech bull run of the last however many years, and kind of the future of where do we think Berkshire goes from here. But this feels like a good place to leave this part.
0: Yeah. I mean, we intended this to be one episode on Berkshire originally, and uh, it's like the, the deeper we go into it. As we were doing the research, I mean, this this Solomon episode, I knew that this had happened. I didn't know that this had happened.
1: No, I mean, the only thing that I really knew was that uh, Warren Buffett was called on to act as the head of Solomon Brothers when they were under duress, and his reputation alone was what saved it. But, like, that is really true. Like, that alone, <laughs> yeah. it's not just, like, that he was acting as the head of the bank in a riskless way. Like... He risked the whole future of Berkshire to make this happen. Yeah. In fact, when when you when you think about the return, turning seven hundred million into one point what, or he made one point seven billion over how many years was that? Like six or seven? I think
0: he made it. It was a billion. So I think it was seven hundred million in, and then one point seven out. But he got the coupon payments also. So.
1: So it's maybe like a two hundred percent return over. Over six, seven years. So good, but not for this risk. Yeah, no, definitely not
0: for this risk.
1: Wild. Well, I think before we talk about power, we should do a quick review of the businesses that they had owned outright during this part of their history. Because I think people have a general sense of the stuff that they own now, both through the businesses that they own wholly and through their ownership of big public companies like you know, Kraft Heinz or of Coca-Cola. But let's review the things they bought in the 70s and 80s and and owned outright. Seize Candy, Westco Financial, The Buffalo News, Precision Steel Warehouse, Nebraska Furniture Mart, B, Scott Fetzer, Feckheimer Brothers, Borsheim's Jewelry, H.H. Brown, Central States Indemnity. And then in 95, the the finishing touch on, on Geico, they bought Hellsberg Diamonds and uh, R.C. Wiley Home Furnishings. So there's like a lot of Berkshire that you think about today that they don't own yet. Yeah.
0: On the public equity side, the main positions we talked about, the Post, Cap Cities, Solomon Brothers, and one that we didn't talk about that we'll talk about more next time in Coca-Cola. I think those represented significant parts of the value But again, as we've seen, they're taking a hands-off approach here.
1: As we analyze the power, we think about them as sort of two different business lines, because it does feel like the the business activities day-to-day are very different between those two things, which actually you see reflected in the management structure of the business flashing all the way forward to 2020. You have Ted and Todd. Uh, on the sort of investment management side, buying publicly traded companies or investing in publicly traded companies. And you've got Greg and Ajit on the, you know, wholly owned subsidiary side. Yep.
0: The insurance and the Ajit running the insurance businesses and Greg running all the non insurance businesses. Non insurance, and-
1: which is funny because it's like so diverse that you don't have a way to label it. So it's just insurance and non insurance. Yep. So, okay, let, let's talk first about the wholly owned businesses. So the business activities there are prospecting, you know, identifying the whole landscapes of, of businesses you could buy, evaluating those businesses on their fundamentals, you know, making the decision to invest or not invest, and then making sure that you leave or install the correct management in place to, you know, make those businesses hum over a long period of time. And then of course, capital allocation, where you're, you're making sure that you're deciding if that business is one that you like consuming capital, and you want to funnel more capital to that business so it can reinvest in in growth. Or if that's a capital producer, and you maybe like uh, your your jacket linings business or your uh, your stamps business, you don't want that business consuming any more capital, and that should just spit off capital that gets sent to the head office for reallocation. So with that preamble, Those are sort of the business activities of the wholly owned subsidiary side of the business. Yeah. Now, of the Hamilton Helmer powers, which, uh, you know, basically enable you to, in a long-term way, get a durable, sustainable, differential profits above your nearest competitors. So here, I think we should think other conglomerates. We should think private equity firms.
0: Definitely private equity firms.
1: Yeah, think about uh, the, these companies going public. SPACs weren't really a thing yet. So that wasn't uh, an option on the table. Strategic acquirers, I think, were though. The question is which of the seven powers sort of applies to Berkshire?
0: Yeah, this is going to be fun. Because
1: it's not network economies. <laughs> it's, not our, it's not our usual favorite. It is definitely not. I'll make a first run at it and say counter positioning mm-hmm. and certainly counter positioning versus anybody that's running money. Yep. And I think to more finely articulate that, I opened this episode by talking about the fact that Warren chose a very unique structure in choosing not to have a fund or a partnership, but instead to have this operating business, Berkshire, that he uses the capital from to invest off the balance sheet. And it's very interesting when you have that structure, and you're not generating fees, and you're not thinking about raising another fund, and you're not getting a carry or a promote, you have just as much downside risk as upside benefit. And so your incentives are pure in a way. You only want to make financial decisions that you know buy low, sell high, or buy low, hold forever, and uh, uh, there's no other way that you make money.
0: Well, all, your only focus is long-term value creation, because nothing that you're going to do isn't going to increase your fees or increase your value in any set you know, fund life period of time or anything like that.
1: Right. So that makes you counterposition to private equity firms. Yep. And so then the question becomes, is that actually power in a positive way, or is it somehow Negative? Is it just a disadvantage? Are they counterpositioned to you? Because let me put it this way: because there are certainly deals that a PE firm would do that Warren wouldn't do because the price is too high. But is the opposite true? Can Warren get deals done because the PE firms have an opposite business model?
0: Well, it's interesting, right? Because this is so obviously not a tech company in so many ways, and this market that Berkshire operates in the market of acquiring in and investing in other companies is not a winner-take-all market so what's interesting is like to succeed they need a niche and they certainly carve out their niche exceedingly well with counter positioning versus other players the best you know we didn't talk about this on the episode I'm going to say cuz we didn't have time but like well, what is time on an acquired episode anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh this is how they win the the Mrs. B deal, the Furniture Mart deal. You know, Buffett sits down with Mrs. B and says to her cuz she has other offers to buy the Furniture Mart for more money and says, you know, you you can certainly take those offers and I'm not going to pay what the private equity firms and others will pay. But at the end of the day those firms are what's motivating them is selling your business for more money (laughs) and Mm. they may say lots of things to you and be aligned and love you and want to keep you and your family in place running it but at the end of the day they're going to do anything to maximize them selling the business for more money within a set period of time so that they can make their fees i'm not going to do
1: that Mm.
0: I'm genuinely going to leave you and your
1: family to run this. Right. It's like having a longer lens is actually the counter positioning here. Yeah. And simultaneously holding true the belief that, or holding it to be true that keeping the family in place to manage it is the long-term value maximizing decision. Yeah. Both of which are true. Both of which can be true. Can be Depending true. on yep. uh, if you acquire the right business. It gets back to the fight
0: with the efficient market hypothesis theorists and the nature of debt which all of the private equity firms are using to buy these companies to lower up the companies and buy them if the goal is to have the companies operate sustainably the longest and generate the most cash flow over truly the longest period of time you don't want to use debt because debt is going to increase the chance that the company goes bankrupt and so if as a seller if you care about the legacy of the company either for you know whatever your family working in the business, you know, then making money, you retain a part of it or, or just for the legacy of the business, your interests are aligned with Warren's then because he wants the lo- cash flows over the longest period, which means he's going to
1: avoid debt. Such a good point. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, I agree. Counter positioning for sure. Definitely branding. Definitely. I mean, like that's probably actually the place where you start. Like the Warren Buffett brand just enables you to do things that like, Literally the Solomon thing, like anyone else crying on the phone to the federal government probably wouldn't have impacted them. But because it was Warren's brand crying on the phone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally.
1: It's trite, but I'm trying to use the the seven powers language here.
0: A hundred percent. I think the seven powers actually apply a lot. Yeah. Counterpositioning applied, but yeah, branding hundred percent like Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's money is worth more than the equal amount of money from somebody else.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Okay, so I don't think there's necessarily scale economies. I mean, maybe you could argue a little bit that, like, the scale of the insurance businesses and the float enables more investing, which enables more operating businesses, which, you know, you know maybe I think that's a little bit of a stretch.
1: During this phase, so it's interesting. Today, I think they actually have diseconomies of scale mm, because yep. they just have too much capital that they need to put to work, but we'll save that for in the next episode. I do think. Uh, this period was the one for the first time where they did realize some economies of scale, where there is this like nice middle ground where like if you're really small, then you can't invest enough money to have sharp elbows on a board. But if Mm. you have too much money, then all you can buy is Apple. And, you know, nothing else moves the needle for you enough. But during this period in the 80s, they had like the perfect amount of money where they could be activist investors on boards and throw their weight around. And that would deliver enough return for them to be needle moving. Yep. Yeah, actually, that's a
0: really good point. That's a good point. It's a power right now, but it's not a like sustainable
1: power. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting to think about. Okay. I don't think they're switching costs. No. I, and that's all I've got for this so far. The question is, which of those apply to the public investing side of the house?
0: Ooh. Well, the one I was going to talk about, I always have such a hard time thinking about this power. And as Hamilton says, it is the trickiest of the seven powers. But is there process power here at
1: Berkshire? I mean, it's funny. It's like thinking about process power in a super small organization feels like a de facto no, because the, the, he always uses the example of the Toyota production system that like the system was so complex it couldn't be written down to be retaught to someone else because it's held in so many heads and the decisions are all made by one person. So like, is there process power in Warren's head? Well, he calls Charlie, but Warren ultimately makes the decision. I think there's a liberal interpretation of process here to yeah. to make that the case.
0: It's funny because I was for public market investing. I was thinking like you know that might be the only really arguable one.
1: You freaking efficient market hypothesis, to you?
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, no, I'm definitely not an efficient market uh, hypothesis disciple. But I do. I think there are definitely market inefficiencies, as this episode shows. But I don't know that Berkshire had any sort of unique, any defensible ability versus others to see and then act on them. They acted on the ones that they saw. Other people could act on the ones that they see.
1: Right. But getting back to that point that I made earlier around identifying things in the market that not only have less risk but actually exclusively have less risk than the market perceives them to have when you act. I think I was sort of foreshadowing power there, where there are things where Berkshire uniquely could have acted and therefore saved the company, gotten the deal that they did, were able to join the board, whatever the thing is. And so I'm trying to figure out how to quantify that. So WAPO, Solomon Brothers, these were things that Buffett could uniquely do in an advantaged way versus the their competitors yeah. uh, their competitors being all other capital and why well Wapo was kind of Buffett had to fight
0: his way in it was sort of like maybe that was like part of developing this power cuz you know Kay was sort of like scared of him at first and certainly reluctant and then Buffett fights his way in i don't know that like that was a power but then once he was on the Washington Post board and, like the mystique of Warren Buffett had started to you know hmm. grow, then I think maybe it becomes something defensible,
1: yeah, it's a great point, well, normally, here I would move us on to playbook. I literally think we had discussed every playbook theme during the narrative, during history and facts uh that I possibly could have brought up here. So I have nothing to add in the playbook section this episode, yes. As as Charlie would say, no,
0: nothing to add. Value creation versus value capture.
1: Let's do it. So, Buffett definitely created more value in this chapter than in the previous one. Like in the previous one, you're buying and selling. You're buying at low prices. You're selling at high prices. Here, you're doing things like they legitimately created value for Solomon's shareholders.
0: Like a lot of they created nine billion (laughs) dollars worth of value.
1: The question is, what other situations in the 70s and 80s did they create value? Certainly for Berkshire shareholders, by marrying the insurance businesses and the operating businesses, for Berkshire shareholders to be able to sort of realize the incredible benefits of those two things operating in tandem.
0: I think they also created value for Geico in the saving Geico. Now, you know, Jack Byrne did all the legwork himself, but no question... Having Warren, you know, there, both with the regulators and the government of like, hey, Berkshire Hathaway is behind us now. We're going to be okay. But then also specifically with the financing and with Solomon Brothers and with Wall Street, you know, backstopping the deal.
1: Yep. Is there value destruction for the American consumer by making it so all those people who had Geico in the states that they decided to pull out of? lost their car insurance? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think so. I mean, how hard is it to go get different insurance? Right. And
0: if Geico wasn't going to make it, if they didn't make those changes.
1: Right. It's not like they corporate rated it and went in and it was going to go perfectly fine, but then they destroyed it, right. Toys R Us style. Now, what
0: was interesting in that story, though, was, you know, I think Geico and Byrne were the first to actually pull out of states like nobody had ever done that before, hmm. uh, so they did sort of cross a Rubicon. So yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Now, certainly, <laughs> Solomon Brothers—you y- y- could debate a lot of value destruction there in aggregate.
1: Oh, from the entire time they were shareholders, certainly. Yeah.
0: Now, did Buffett and Berkshire
1: meaningfully contribute to that? No, probably Unlikely. not.
0: Other than they did prop up corrupt management.
1: Yeah. Like value capture to move on to that and hit it real quick. It's Berkshire, it's Buffett, they always do a damn good job of capturing the value they create. <laughs> no qualms there. Yeah. Interestingly,
0: especially over this period in the life of the company, probably because of the long-term focus and not selling investments with regard to tax liabilities. You know, Berkshire and its shareholders pay if you don't sell, you pay no tax.
1: Right. Ma- massive tax deferrals. Massive tax deferrals. Yep. All right. Grading. I want to grade this the same way that we graded the last one, which is we are going to look at their pure performance versus the S&P 500 during that same time frame. And you you may recall that in the Buffett partnership years, the annualized return was a 29.5% annual return over those 12 years. Historic, legendary and I think what did we determine that was something like a 28 X and you actually yeah. that, that 12 years, you could comp nicely against a venture fund and say, uh, if anyone could 28 X the money, then they'd be a top decile fund for sure. And, uh, the Buffett partnership had the increased benefit of you could take all your money out or put all your money in, in any given year. You didn't even have to lock it up for the entire life of the fund the way that a venture fund does. So, uh, you know, slam dunk, I think we call that an A or an A plus, this set of years, we're going to look at 1970, so the year immediately following the liquidation of the partnership, to 1992, and we're going to look at just Berkshire Hathaway over that stretch of time. Their rate of return, pretty similar, 27.4%. Dang. Like, I don't know how you like the Buffett partnership years and don't like these. I think this is like- Yeah. This is the golden years of Berkshire Hathaway. Totally.
0: Wow. I didn't realize that that's what the number was. I mean it literally is it's just like Michael Jordan, you know? He went out at the top of his game, he came back and he won three more championships. And then he went to play for the Washington Wizards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually maybe we will see that last part here in uh in getting by tech way. stocks in the next next chapter. Yeah, but truly I think uh, there's this scary thing where you sort of look at this and you're like maybe Buffett does know how to time the market. Like, no one can, and yet the guy liquidated his partnership in 69, bought back in big in 71, 72, had this run all the way through, you know, the early 90s, started piling up cash in the 90s, and as we'll talk about, wrote a very famous article in 99, you know, the year before the the dot-com bubble burst articulating exactly how overheated everything was as he was piling up his cash. So he is acting on his thoughts here. Maybe he can time the market.
0: Maybe. Although, well, we'll save this for part three, but I would say track record on market timing has not been great of late.
1: No. But just to put some numbers around this 27.4% rate of return, if you had bought Berkshire in 1970... On January first, which is uh, the day that Buffett distributed it out to everyone when he closed down the partnership, uh, it was forty-five bucks a share. And at the end of nineteen ninety-two, and and of course these are what we now call the A shares. In nineteen ninety-two, that was eleven thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars a share.
0: Wow, that's bonkers, bonkers. And today it's over four hundred thousand. Is that right?
1: Yes, it is a record high as of last Thursday and may maybe up again, again this week. Wow. My hat is off.
0: <laughs> All right, what more can you say? All right. What more can you say except like the comparison is Michael Jordan?
1: Yeah. Well, listeners, we will know more in part three. And thank you for uh, listening to the Empire Strikes Back episode <laughs> of the Berkshire Trilogy. David, do you want to do quick carve outs?
0: Yeah, let's do it. So my carve out is a great podcast episode on the armchair expert podcast, which is so, so good. good. So good. Dax and Monica do such a good job. So many good episodes recently, but Seattle love the Macklemore episode was amazing. Oh, yeah? Have you listened to this? No, I haven't. Oh, you got to listen to it. It's so great. Lots of Seattle talk. Dax loves Seattle. He recently was in Seattle. So they spent a lot of time talking about it, but. Macklemore was so great. They just get into so much great stuff. Lots of discussion about... that. Just go listen to the episode. It's fantastic.
1: All right. Just added it to my queue. Literally pulled out my phone and added it to my overcast queue. Mine has its roots in uh, something that you said earlier this episode. You mentioned the mafia. You mentioned the state of New Jersey. I, for the first time, am watching The Sopranos. And it is excellent. Love and it. I totally see how it kicked off this like modern golden era of tv that we have going on and i think um uh, it was lost on me i mean i was what 9 when it first came out or 10 when it first came out but it was lost on me all these years where i've loved shows like mad men and billions and succession and uh going back and watching the wire like the sopranos really did sort of kick it all off and it's violent, it's horrifying in, in many ways, but God, is the writing great? So great. So, can't recommend it enough. I am in season 6A, so I am nearing the finish line, so nobody spoil it for me. Amazing. What year did The Sopranos start? I want to say it was like 97, 98. Wow. It was like right around the time The Matrix came out.
0: Wow. Oh, man, that's a throwback. Yeah. The Matrix. Wow. <laughs>
1: And they share a couple of actors between The Matrix and that, which is, it's, it's it's old enough where you see people who you know from things later in their career, and you're like, oh my God, it's a young so-and-so. And I'm, I'm feeling quickly like my parents. Like when I was a kid, I remember watching things with my parents, and they would say, oh my gosh, this movie has young so-and-so in it. And uh, that's now me. <laughs> that's
0: amazing. That's amazing. Well, we're hitting that time of life.
1: We are... Well, listeners, if you want to talk about all things Acquired, this episode, things we missed, things we caught, little notions that you have that uh, we may not have seen in the research, this is a three-parter, so it is not too late to tell us, and we can insert these great tidbits into the final part of the trilogy. Join us in the Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. You can talk to lots of other people. There's 7,000 people, plus David and I, and it's always a a great time in there, so you, you should join us. If you love Acquired and want to be a deeper part of what we do here, become a limited partner. Acquired.fm slash LP. You'll get access to our library of over 50 interviews and deep dives on company building topics, monthly Zoom calls, and our upcoming Next Book Club with Brad Stone, which we're super, super excited about. Woo! So with that, if you aren't subscribed and you want to part three, someone sent you this and you're like, I have to make sure I know when part three comes out. You can click subscribe in the podcast player of your choice. They may even have a, an option so you can enable push notifications so that way you you know for sure when that episode drops. And uh, tell your friends. Share it on social media. We always appreciate when people share their love or frankly, if you have some beef and you want to show that publicly too, we're happy for you to do that wherever wherever you see fit. So thank you for sharing the show. Thank you for listening. Listeners, we will see you next time.
0: We'll see you next time.